Welcome to the best in true crime podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. Boy, have we got an exciting show, an action-packed show for you today, folks. We're going to talk about not just one, but two murderers in one today. You get a, a double feature. You get a double scoop of true crime today. My guest is Rebecca F. Pittman. She has two books out there right now. The newest one we'll talk about in the second half of the program. It's called Countdown to Murder, Alex Murdaugh, Money, Murder, and Deception in South Carolina. This was the hottest case last year into this year. And boy, I tell you... You want to talk about a case that everyone was enthralled with. It was this case. And it just keeps building, folks. There's more that gets added onto this case. Rebecca has brand new information on this case we'll talk about today. The other case got made into a mini series on, I believe it was on Peacock. We'll talk to uh, we'll talk to Rebecca about this too. Uh, her other book, Countdown to Murder, Pam Hupp, Death Insured is the one that we're going to talk about right away today. Rebecca F. Pittman is our guest. She's a best-selling author in several genres. Uh, we've had her on in 2017 talking about Lizzie Borden. And she has a book out there as well, as far as uh, Lizzie Borden goes. It's called The History and Haunting of Lizzie Borden. Her popular history and haunting series of books have been spotlighted on various TV, radio, and podcast forums, including this one. She's a former TV talk show host, muralist, escape room owner, game creator, and runway model who finds mysteries irresistible. We're going to talk about a couple of those today. Let's welcome in to Darkness Radio's True Crime Tuesday, Rebecca F. Pittman. Rebecca, how are you today? Well, after that introduction, I'm doing really good. How are you, Tim? I am excellent. Boy, we got a lot to talk about today. Um, it is a lot. Yeah, there is a lot here and a lot to uh, a lot to digest. So, I want to I want to jump first into Pam Hupp. Now, I know there was the the miniseries, the widely popular miniseries mm -hmm. on Peacock, uh, and that that uh, follow me here for a second here, Rebecca. I know it was popular, but was it fair to the subject? I want to I want to tackle that first, and I want to get your opinion on it because I know you were you were ingrained deep into the subject. It, that's a tough call. Um, it's the the Dateline had been doing a very popular podcast. It had done six on Pam Hup, which mm -hmm. is the most they'd ever done on one topic called "The Thing About Pam." Mm -hmm. So suddenly Renee Zellweger decided that she was going to push doing the thing about Pam as a mini TV series for NBC. And she was one of the co-producers, as was Bloomhouse. So everybody had high expectations for it. In answer to your question, they hit on the, they hit on the, the salient points. Okay. But I think all of us were shocked at the tone of the show, that it was a tour de force farce and uh, almost a comedy take on it, which a lot of people felt did a grave disservice to the family members. Um, I was really surprised. There was a lot that was made up uh, for entertainment, but as far as hitting the story, yeah, they hit, they hit pretty much all of the points that, that were involved with the three murders. Does it do such a disservice when you add that element of comedy that it takes the seriousness out of the case? I thought it did. Yeah. I, I thought it did big time. Uh, it was, you know, with you had Dateline um, Keith doing the narration. You thought you were going to see a Dateline type 
program and just the opening scene with Pam Hupp dancing around saying everything she's done. This is one of the most insidious evil people that have walked the planet. And I was just really surprised at the tone of the show. I mean, it, it's it's everything but putting the State Farm guy in there and 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 you know making almost fun of it with the commercial. I mean, it it, it was how big of a black eye do you think it put on on the actual case? If you had to rate it from one to ten, I don't know that it impacted the actual case. Um, well, I'm the, very close with the lead detective on the case. We talk once a week, and I'm very good friends with the prosecuting attorneys. And they just moved her murder trial from next June, which is when they were finally going to take her to court for killing her friend, Betsy Faria. It has now been moved to 2025. So I don't think the show, I mean, I think most people realized it was for entertainment value. I just felt it was hurtful to the families because I've been, I've become friends with them. Um, Yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. I interviewed uh, Betsy Faria's daughter for the book, and you don't have any idea what these people have gone through and are still going through. So as far as hurting the case, no. But I think the parameter of the people involved, I think it was was really hard. If that had been my mother that had been stabbed 55 times and somebody was doing almost a comedy about it, yeah, that'd be hard for me. We'll get into the specifics of the case here in a second, but I have to ask you this. When you're trying to find impartial jury members for something Mm -hmm. like that, and you have something that comes out like that, does it make it harder for the prosecution? Does it make it harder for the defense? Does it make it harder in general to go through a prospective jury pool? I mean, because there's really nowhere in the world you can move that that court trial to to find uh an impartial jury how do you go about it in your opinion well it absolutely put the world view on it that show absolutely Mm -hmm. did um so yeah they were going to move it away from troy and lincoln county anyway and in the hopes of getting uh an untainted jury panel and the fact that it is still two years away might help them. Uh, the show is still popular, but not like when it first came out. So I don't, it doesn't help, but I think they would have been facing the problem of getting an impartial jury anyway that didn't already know all the details. Yeah, true, true. Uh, let's let's jump into the specifics of the case. Let's Let's learn a little bit, first of all, about Pam Hupp. Who was Pam Hupp? Or who is she? <laughs> That's still a good question. Uh, she was supposed to be a very innocuous, everyday, I hate to say it, but frumpy, uh, stay-at-home person. Uh, nobody would ever suspect. She and her current husband, this was her second husband, flipped houses. And she had had uh, jobs with insurance companies. Mm-hmm. State Farm Insurance is where she met Betsy Faria. But... By all accounts, she was just not someone on the radar. Great personality. She could talk you into, you know, the old tried and true of selling ice cream to an Eskimo. She was excellent at reading people, which she probably used when she was selling insurance. Um, But other than that, she is not someone you would suspect, which is why she partially got away with it the first time. 
Now, Betsy herself had, uh, let's just say she, she had a, a terminal disease. She had cancer. Yes. And um, Betsy saw an opportunity. Is that fair to say? You mean Pam? I'm, I'm sorry, Pam. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm getting it. Oh, that's fine. Mixed up. Uh, Pam had not seen Betsy for years. They worked for a couple of years together at State Farm. Betsy moved on and opened her own DJ service. Oh. And yeah, I would say that Pam began insinuating herself into Betsy's life big time in the last two years when she found out she had, well, at that point it was breast cancer. They removed the breast, gave Betsy a thumbs up, Mm -hmm. but it came back and spread to her liver. And at that time, Pam went into full, full, full Monty, if you want to call it full force boogie. Uh, and did things with insurance papers to make sure when Betsy died, she'd be inheriting 150000 Now, where does the fundraising come in with another family? I know the two of them teamed up for uh, a fundraising campaign. What, what was the story yeah. behind that? Without the family knowing. In that- fact, until law enforcement approached the father or the husband who had lost his wife to cancer, he had no idea. The lady was still alive when they were camp- Pam talked Betsy into campaigning door to door to raise money for this woman because she had cancer. I think they raised ten thousand dollars. They never saw a dime of it. Wow! In fact, when law enforcement approached the the widower, um, the late the late uh, wife's husband. He looked at the flyer they've been passing out. He goes, that's our Christmas card photo. So Betsy and Pam knew this lady. Obviously, they may have gotten a Christmas card in the mail, and she used that photo for the fake flyers, and nobody ever knew what happened to the $10,000. Wow. So, so they, they raise this money, and what becomes of it? I mean, what, what, what Oh, it went in her pocket. There's no doubt in my mind. What I learned from researching the book is you followed the money. That's as soon as Pam started to run out of money, mm-hmm. somebody died. Somebody got hurt. And that's not, I'm not saying that lightly. It is the truth. We still believe there's some victims in Florida. And I spent a lot of time researching in Florida while she was there. When did she start running out of money? And that's when we started looking at those dates and where she was living at the time. And that's still ongoing right now. So, Basically, if things were getting low, she did something. And unfortunately, it cost three people their lives. Wow. Rebecca, I have to ask you this question. When, when you look into her earlier life, do you see any signs of some sort of psychopathy, even as a teenager or, or anything like that? Is there anything in her background as a, as a, as a youngster that maybe she had this tendency? She had a very contentious relationship with her mother. Her mother was an alcoholic. I think she made Pam feel less, maybe favored the siblings. In high school, Pam needed to be the center of attention, whether it was waving pom-poms or being in sports. You, you saw this personality that needed desperately to be in the limelight and be important. Unfortunately, she got pregnant Um, right out of high school and the gentleman married her and I did talk to him as well and I asked him that question 
he said she was the most generous, loving person. And then she just changed. And I think it's when she realized other people her age were out going on with their lives. They didn't get pregnant. They were going to college. They were having careers. And she was at home with a crying baby. And this was not the life she envisioned. And that's when things started turning around. That's what I believe. Where did the appetite for big money come in? What's the idea with the big score? I think she felt she deserved it. There are people like that, including Alec Murdaugh, who believe they are entitled. They should have a superior life. They're smart. Both of them are incredibly smart. Mm -hmm. She and Alex are very smart. And I think it's just that sense of entitlement. I, I have a person very close to me that I won't mention their name. I watched it. Really? Growing up, I watched this person steal people blind that needed to be a movie star, that needed everything to be bigger than, better than. It was an obsession. And there's just people like that. They cannot live a mediocre, ordinary life. And Pam wanted nice homes, money, cars. And so when that divorce ended, she married Mark, who was playing, uh, had a contract that was supposed to start in Florida for baseball. Mm -hmm. And she's thinking dollar signs and fame. And they got out there and he didn't make the cut. Mm. And they started flipping houses. Which... You know, in, in real estate, that's that's boomer bust. I mean, you, you either mm-hmm. are, are very good at it or you just don't make the cut. I mean, that's that's a that's either a win or a loss there too. Well, what's chilling to me, and they pick Naples, which yay for them. Yeah, um, yeah. what is that, the most millionaires per square mile? Right. But what was interesting is they moved into a very modest condo. And she started, um, Tim, a fake business called Medical Billing Services Review. I looked it up. It doesn't exist. In fact, it's the first business I've ever seen where it says false name under it. She got uh, a Duns and Broad Street number, which you can buy. Some of them are free to make it look legit and to get grants. But what's chilling to me is... I think that's how she pulled in whatever victims we're going to find out there, because who has the most medical bills? Elderly people. Yeah. And the minute they come in and lay out all of their things in front of you, you've got it all. Their social security number, if they have any living descendants and that it was a fake business. There's no record of it. And I find that very chilling. And I'll bet you money the first victim was somebody she pulled in using that. Absolutely. I, I, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right there, Rebecca. The, you know, and I've, I've made the joke before on the show. Maybe it's an insensitive joke, but Florida really is God's waiting room. I mean, you want to talk about, you know. <laughs> oh, that's awful. <laughs> it is an awful joke, I know. But it's, it's, it, it is where a lot of you have a lot of people from the East Coast who come down to retire there. You have people even from the Midwest who are snowbirds. Um, and there are a lot of people who have either saved up their retirement or they've saved well. They bring it down to Florida and they live there either full time or, or half time. Right. Uh, and there's a lot of money down there. A lot of retirement communities, tons and tons. Yeah. And it's, so, it's right for the Yeah, pickle. I do believe it. I mean, if it was phony, then there's something suspicious right there. 
you know, what is she doing? Yeah. She she came up with another fake business when they moved back to Missouri called Sensory House LLC. Again, not legit. Got a Duns and Broad Street for it. I don't even know what that means. I could find no definition of it, no record of it. I don't know if it was aromatherapy or what Sensory House was, but I never could find it. So I don't know. That sounds like it could be a metaphysical thing, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. 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 Maybe she put them in a trance and then T- never mind. Took their wallet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's say that. Yeah. Acupuncture <laughs> and then pin them to the wall and take their wallet. That's the only thing that makes sense to me, I guess. Um, so I want to, I want to get back to, to Betsy here. So the, she, the cancer metastasizes in the liver and mm-hmm. obviously it's at this point that she knows she's not long for this world. To, I mean, to not, I mean, not, not being too sensitive about it, obviously. Um, it's at this point, she's got insurance policies, not just one, but she's right. got a few. There's some questions about her husband and to, uh, what kind of character he is. Can you explain a little bit about why there's questions about her husband's character? Well, they had a contentious marriage, and that's not to say that's not normal. They broke up. They made up. Uh, I think they clearly loved each other. When he found out about the cancer, he was very good to her. Mm -hmm. One month before her murder, they went on a really nice cruise with all of their family and friends, which, by the way, Pam wasn't invited. Um, So, you know, Russ has a big personality, and... um, but I think he really cared for her and her two daughters, Mariah and Leah. They were, he was like their father to them. Okay. But it, yeah, the, the law enforcement honed in on some of the fights they'd had and things like that, which I'm not sure was fair uh, because I don't know of a perfect marriage out there. And there's a lot of people that break up and get back together. And um, but yeah, Pam definitely took advantage of the fact that the, they, it was a, it was a death sentence. They told Betsy at that point it had spread to her liver and she had probably three years at the most to live, which is why she started going over her policies. She wanted to make sure that the girls were taken care of when she was gone and, um, put a couple of them, they had been in Russ's name, her Biggest fear with Russ is he'd been wanting a motorcycle, a fancy one. She was afraid in his grief he might blow through the money. Mm-hmm. She wanted it to be, you know, staggered. So when the girls got married or went to college or whatever, that the money would be there. So she was looking into annuities. But there was one policy in Russell's name for 150000 that Pam said, look, I'm really worried he's going to blow it. If you put my name on it, I'll make sure they get taken care of. And I guess she talked her into doing it. Okay. And they, the Pam picked a library to have a witness on that form rather than go to State Farm or a notary, which would have asked to see photo ID. Mm-hmm. which is why in the book I put, I have doubts that Betsy was actually with her. I think some other woman was with her okay. or why did Pam pick a place that wasn't going to ask for photo ID? Yes, correct. Yeah. That is a little shady. You know, I have a question here for you, Rebecca, how contentious was the relationship between Russ and Pam? Because it, it, you mentioned there was no invitation to this cruise between the two of them. It sounds like 
the husband and Pam don't get along at all. That 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 there's actually there's bad he didn't blood. know her. He didn't know he had, her. He'd, he'd met her maybe three times. He really thought she was good to Betsy. That she oh, would come and, right. and take Betsy for walks. She went to almost every chemo treatment with Betsy. In the end, he even told law enforcement that when they hauled him in the morning after the murder, he goes, "She's a good person." Huh. So he didn't really know her very well. She hadn't been to the house that many times. Okay. And um, so, no, I, I think for him, he thought saw her as a friend to Betsy. Why Betsy didn't invite her, I don't know. But the week before the, the insurance form thing at the library, Betsy was in Branson with another girlfriend and had told her, I have to go back early from our vacation. Pam wants me there. And she was, and I don't want to talk to her. I think, and Betsy's best friend, Rita Wolf, told me this, that toward the end, Betsy was tired of her. She was, she was just constantly like a wet towel around your face. She was always there, cloying and controlling. And I think she just needed a break from her. Interesting, huh? And that's saying a lot, especially for someone who's terminally ill, um, uh-huh. who, you know, really, and I guess I can speak as someone who, I mean, I myself have my own issues. You know, when you're, when you're at a place at a low point with your health, you really want as many people around you supporting you as you can get because you really don't function very well. Um, and I've had my low points as well where I really feel like I need people around me. I'm not at that point now, but... Uh, you know, I, I, I thank God for the people I've had around me. So to say that someone's cloying and, and, you know, not necessarily, you don't want them around that, that takes a lot of energy out of you when you have somebody like that. That's saying a lot that, that is. Well, Betsy had a lot of friends. She had a ton of friends. She was never without someone sitting there with her because chemo takes a while Mm -hmm. and they would take turns being there. So on the day of the murder, she had a chemo appointment. And Pam kept pushing her, I'll come get you. I'll come pick you up. And it was supposed to be for two o'clock. And she said, I don't need you to take me. Uh, My friend, um, um, I can't think of her name all of a sudden, but it was her mother's good friend. She goes, she's here. She's going to take me. So you don't have to come. Pam showed up anyway. Because the night, this was going to be the murder night. And she wanted to be have Betsy in her sight at all times. And so Betsy was really put out. It was when she walked in anyway, it's like, what the heck? Mm -hmm. So she went ahead and took her friend to dinner. Pam said, okay, I'll go home and cook dinner for, for Mark and Travis. And then I'll come back to your mom's house and get you. She goes, Russ is taking me home. No, no, no. He doesn't have to stop his game night. I'll come get you. You couldn't say no to Pam. And she did. She showed up at 5.30, and the rest of it was a countdown to murder, starting at that point. Mm, mm, mm. So she's really just put herself in Betsy's life, and, and there's, there's no getting her out, like a barnacle. She's just yeah. stuck herself there. So that was Pam's personality. She, she was like a dog with a bone. I mean, it was taught she'd wear you down. Mm-hmm. So it is sad. And Betsy was such a sweet person. She hated her to anybody's feelings. Russ called Betsy around that same time at 530. And she goes, I guess Pam's going to take me home. He goes, are you sure? She goes, 
Yeah, he goes, all right, I'll see you after game night. Because he had a game night every Tuesday, and Pam knew that. And this was Tuesday night. She knew he wouldn't be home and that she could kill Betsy and pin the whole thing on him and stage the the murder scene to look like he did it, which is just not only did she take his wife and the mother of the two girls, she staged it to look like Russell did it. Yeah, I was going to say, so Betsy is stabbed 55 times, including in the neck? Yeah, the, ne- the knife was left in the neck. Um we believe that that was the first actual wound. And people go, well, if it was the first one, how could it be still sticking out of her neck? It's because there are two parallel tracks. The, the, the first one is where the knife first went in. It went all the way through and cut her windpipe and came out the other side. The second one was a different trajectory where she had pulled the knife out and kept going. And there was so there were two slices through the neck. It she hit almost every organ um, oh. that that poor woman had. But what is really sad is a big bunch of them were post mortem, which means after her heart had stopped pumping, a lot of them on her back, which obviously she couldn't have done to herself. All right. of these others, they weren't bleeding out, including a wound to her wrist that went clear to the bone. There should have been a lot of blood from that, and there wasn't because her heart had stopped pumping. So while she, while Betsy was laying on the couch with a comforter expecting a phone call from her daughter, I believe that's when Pam came around the corner with the kitchen knife probably did something like, here, let me help you and pull the blanket up on her because Betsy's white count had been low from the chemo that day. She was tired. Mm-hmm. That's all it took was wh- whip out the knife. And once through the neck, when it severed her windpipe, she had two, three minutes left to live. It's over. Oh I mean, she God. she had some defensive wounds. She flung the phone, which already had blood on it. It was laying over on the floor. And she pushed off from the couch to get away from her and rolled out of the comforter twice before she stayed where she was. And Pam just kept knifing her. Oh, my God. She didn't have a chance, Tim. That's what's so awful. So the last, the last one, she left the, the knife in the neck for effect after she'd done all those other wounds. I mean, oh, my gosh. And according to police, they said that there were no blood trails out. So in other words, Betsy had bled out, but there was no footprints leading out, no blood spatter leading out. So they, they, they assumed at first that everything was an inside job. Uh-huh. Um. Russ comes home from game night. He had stopped off at Arby's, I believe, correct? Correct. And then comes home, finds Betsy on the floor, and a panic calls 911. And, of course, he's in a panic. He finds his, his, his wife on the floor dead. He's, he's distraught. And when police come to the scene, they find what? Well, he called it in as a 911 call. A 911 call is a suicide, pardon me. And Russ was so hysterical that the 911 operator could not get him to calm down. It was used against him during the trial that it was over the top, mm-hmm. that it was probably a fake 
you know, husband in hysteria. So they, when they arrive, they're expecting a suicide. But the minute the detectives walked in and took one look at her, they're going, this is no suicide. And at that time, they hadn't even counted all the puncture wounds. Initially, when they took Russ downtown, the first count that came in was 25. By the time the autopsy was done, it was 55 to 56 stab wounds um so they knew immediately it wasn't and there so that's why he became a suspect like bam Mm -hmm. was there's no way that this guy saw this and thinks it's a suicide plus thanks to pam pam left a few clues for them um the light switch leading into the master bedroom was swiped with blood and Russ's slipper, bedroom slippers were stained with Betsy's blood and tossed into the closet. Yeah. So from the beginning, they thought we got a slam dunk case with this guy. Yeah. Yeah. So she set it up brilliantly to have Russ take the fall. Um, at that point, is Russ taken into custody right away? Oh, immediately. Where he stayed the next 30-some hours. A polygraph, the whole nine yards. I think in the beginning, he thought they that they were just, you know, routine. And then when the questions got worse, he realized they were suspecting him. And they told him he failed the polygraph. Mm-hmm. The polygraph was fake. He was taken into a room with a laptop and everything. And he's thinking, where's all the apparatus and all of that? It was a fake polygraph. And according to them, they said, that's legal. You can do that. Well, according to Russ's attorney, Joel Schwartz, it's legal, but you're supposed to let his attorney know that you did that. So when they bring him back from the polygraph, they're going, you lied. It showed that you lied. You killed her. You did all this. And they are just, and that's when he realized I'm in trouble. They were just, at first she's going, I did not do this. He has four witnesses from game night. He's got a receipt from Arby's. He's got other camera footage of where he went before game night, getting gas and dog food, airtight alibi, including the time he got home and when he called 911 and they still railroaded him. And didn't they accuse him of trying to form a conspiracy with his friends over the Arby's thing? Yeah, because they the games that they played were like a Dungeons and Dragons role play. So the prosecuting attorney, Leah Askey, for her, her final slam dunk said, because she's got a problem. She's got four witnesses saying he was with us. So she brings him in and says, uh, actually, this is to the jury, what we have here is role play, that they were going to kill Russell's wife as part of that game. Then one of them went to Arby's and got the receipt and kept his cell phone so it would look like he was somewhere else other than at the house killing Betsy, then brought him the cell phone and the receipt before the police showed up. And when she introduced that at the trial, Russ's attorney, Joel Schwartz, was on his his feet going, Your Honor, she just said four innocent people were involved in a murder conspiracy. I mean, he was livid. It was, I, I couldn't believe it. Wow. So, Russ is found, basically, we go to, we go to trial here. Russ is found guilty. Well, uh, yeah, they, 
well, Pam kept kept it going. Um, every they, she was the star witness. Every time they brought her in for an interview, she gave them some more. Uh, she made sure that there was no going back, and uh, told him that she told the detectives actually the morning after the murders when they came to interview her because she took Betsy home. She said, oh, yeah, a week ago, he was playing a game of putting a pillow over her face and saying, this is going to feel like what, what it's going to feel like when you die. She found a Gatorade in her gym bag that tasted funny and she spit it out. I mean, she just buried the guy and they believed her. And at that point, I think they wanted to believe her. They were so far in that they just wanted this guy to go to jail and be done with it. And they didn't really look at anybody else. Where does Even the, though Pam's story changed a million times. I was going to say. Her story would change while they were interviewing her. And you're going, are you kidding me? Where does the worm turn here? Because her her story does change. And and where, where do authorities go, you know what? Something doesn't line up here with Pam and we have the wrong guy. Well, it was while Russ was in prison, his attorney, Joel Schwartz, wouldn't give up. He knew it was Pam. They kept Pam's insurance, the insurance thing out of the original trial, which tied his hands. Mm -hmm. That would have given a motive for Pam. It would have given the jury some reasonable doubt. Hey, this woman came into $150,000. The judge didn't let it in. So Russ is in prison and Joel says, I'm not giving up. So he Russ is in there for three years, and his attorney kept trying to get an appeal. They kept getting him turned down. He goes, I just need some new evidence. I need one thing. Well, Pam actually handed it to him on a silver platter. She, uh, the, the two daughters were contesting that she keep that 150000 from her mother's life insurance. They take her to civil court. So Pam has a deposition right before that trial and it's videotaped like they all are mm -hmm. and she's sitting there like no problems in the world and, and they said well do you plan on giving those girls any of the money because you said originally that was why betsy made you the beneficiaries you were going to help them and she goes you know what no in fact i revoked it it was a revocable will and i revoked it i'm sp i already spent it whoa just like touch me if you can and the guy the minute she walked out of the room the lawyer picked up the phone called joel schwartz he goes this might interest you and he went thank you and he thought here's what we need to get the judge a new judge different judge to look at this again and they did it's called a moody motion moody motion and they gave russ a second trial and he was acquitted and Joel Schwartz finally said, Pam Hupp, I'm coming for you. Why does the original judge recuse themselves? I, I, I'm a little confused as to why. As to who did? The, the original judge recuses themselves. Well, actually, the judge, the prosecuting attorney, and the detectives were all under fire. It turned out the judge for the first case against Russ was very good friends with Leah Askey. They'd gone to high school together. She'd kept out Pam's insurance testimony. And I don't know that they were recused so much as she was fired. They okay. found later that there were some other cases that were iffy that she had sat the bench uh, for. Okay, okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. 
I, so Judge Omar was the new one and really, really neat, decent guy. And at the end of it, even after he acquitted Russ, he goes, there are details of this case with what law enforcement did that are deeply troubling. All right. So there was a cover up with them, with the law enforcement. They were planting evidence. They were lying about photographs taken at the crime scene. It was pretty bad. Uh, there's, I think we can briefly touch on it. Uh, I, I, I want to talk a little bit about Shirley Newman, who's Hupp's mom, uh, mm-hmm. Pam Hupp's mom. What is the, the, the mystery behind her and, and, and her death? What is so strange about her? Well, Pam had always, like I said, had a contentious relationship with her mother Right before Russ's second trial, one of the detectives actually went to Pam and said, do you still have that insurance money? She goes, yeah. Well, you need to put it into a trust or an annuity for the, to make it look like you're giving that money to the girls or this could be a problem. Oh, okay. Well, she'd already spent it. Ooh. Enter her poor mother who has insurance that Pam will benefit from 500,000, which Pam bragged about to this same detective. Hey, if I wanted to kill somebody, I could kill my mom who's worth half a million. Why would I kill Betsy? So right before that money needed to show up in a bank account for those girls, right before Russ's second trial, her mom plunges three feet off of a balcony at her senior citizen living facility Pam had brought her home that night, taken her straight up to the room, and the next morning they found Shirley laying down on the pavement. It had rained all night. That poor woman laid out there all night. They could tell by the body temperature she didn't die immediately. Oh, my God. Uh, it It was horrible. And Pam, when she left her mom's apartment after pushing her over, went down and told everybody, look, she's she's done for the night. She's turning in. She won't be down for dinner. And she may not be down for breakfast. If she's not there for lunch, go ahead and check on her. So at 2 o'clock, housekeeping went to check on her, looked over the balcony and saw her. Oh. Eight times the amount of Ambien in her system that was normal. So looked like she'd been drugged and then pushed over the balcony, and the insurance money was paid out to Pam and her siblings. So Pam ended up, when things were all said and done, with 100000 and put it in the bank only four days before that trial. That's how close she came to show that, no, the money's still in there. I haven't spent it. Oh, my God. Wow. Four days. I mean, that's calling it short. That is calling it short. And, and how diabolical to to kill your own mother to cover your own greed. That is well, amazing. Yeah, and then to, to lure a complete stranger that was mentally and physically handicapped to her home, shooting five times and put a fake note in his pocket, making it look like Russ had sent this guy to kidnap Pam, Lewis take Gump- her to the bank, Lewis, Lewis Gump- Gumpenberger. Yeah, let's talk about him for a second. How does she know him? She doesn't. She went trolling for a complete stranger. 
she got one lady in the car from a trailer park by saying, hey, I'm a Dateline producer, and if you'll come with me and do a soundbite for a fake 911 call, I'll give you $1,000 cash. Can't even trace it with Uncle Sam. And this woman's going, this is really weird. But she wanted to see where it was going, got in the car with her and started feeling hinky. She asked Pam for some Dateline ID. Oh, it's, it's where we're going. It's fine. And they were headed in the wrong direction. And she finally said, you know what? I need you to take me home. I need to put the dog in. I don't have my shoes on. And when Pam drove her home, this woman was smart enough to make Pam pull into the driveway so that the security camera on this woman's trailer caught Pam's license plate. And Pam was even exiting the car. I think she was going to kill this woman right then. And then she goes, you've got cameras. She goes, yes, I do. So she got in the car, undaunted, goes around the corner, sees a guy mowing a lawn for the maintenance company for this trailer park, pulls up to him. Hey, I'm with Dateline. Tells him the same thing. He looks at her. He goes, lady, I got a lot of work to do. I'm not interested. So she waited six days because of those security cameras. She was really nervous. This woman may have called 911 after she got out of the car. When nothing happened, Pam goes to an apartment complex instead. Louis Gumpenberger sitting out on the front patio having a cigarette. She motions for him to come over. He was in a bad car wreck, and even though he's 32, his mother said he had the mentality of a 12-year-old. He walks with a limp. He can't run. He can't drive. She tells him that story, and he goes, okay, and gets in because he was hoping to give the $1,000 to his mom to help contribute for all that she was doing for him. And on the way to Pam's house, Pam instructs him on what to say during the fake 911 call he had a little trouble with it because he was a little harder to catch things and she kept trying to get him to rehearse it. So they pull up in the driveway and they go inside and she calls 911 after she's told him what to do. He's supposed to bang on the walls and say, give him the, I'm taking you to the bank to get Russ's money. So she called 911 three times. The first two times she hung up. And I think it's because he wasn't doing it right. Uh -huh. Plus, she put down a cut piece of carpet for him to stand on. So when she shot him, he wouldn't bleed on her good carpet. Jeez. I think he moved off of that carpet. So finally, she's got him where she wants him. She calls a real 911. So the dispatcher will be the witness. Mm -hmm. Help, help. Someone's broken in my home. Help, help. And the lady's going, what's your address? She wouldn't give it to him because mm -hmm. she didn't want him to get there too soon. Help, help. And then you hear him say, you want me to do to you what you did to your wife, which was not what he was supposed to say. And she went, no, I won't get in the car with you. I mean, the whole thing was such bad acting. And then help, help, pounding noises. The dispatcher's going, ma'am, what is your address? And the next thing you hear are five shots. Jeez. And then it got quiet and the smoke alarm went off. So you've got that shrilling, but she, Pam's not yelling anymore. And I think that's when she put the fake note in Lewis's pocket that was supposed to look like Russ sent him to kill her. And that would have put Russ right back in prison and get the heat off of her because they're now looking at her for murdering Betsy. And she killed a total stranger for the just for that. Unbelievable.
unbelievable. It is. It's chilling. It's not an easy book to write. Alex's was even harder. It's you don't really believe that these people are out there, but they are. It, there's no sense of grief or remorse or conscience. It's entitlement. You're in my way, and I will now remove you. I need money, I need this, and you're in my way. And it's one lie followed by one huge act, followed by a bigger lie and another bigger act to try and cover up the smaller lie and the smaller act. And it just spirals out of control, Rebecca. Very well put. And it, it it's it's so ridiculous that you want to you don't want to believe it's real, but yeah. people are being killed. Yeah, you know. Well, the mother her mother's case is still open. I gave the detectives anything that I found while I was um, researching the book. It is still open. We may still hear something about that. And as I mentioned, the thing in Florida is still ongoing. Well, I don't know how many bodies there are, and I don't want to sound dramatic, but I don't put anything past her. If the money was running out, I believe she would do whatever it took over and over. Frankly, when I first read about how many stab wounds Betsy had and that there was no DNA left behind by the murderer, I, my first thought was, this is not this person's first time. Yes, yeah. How do you do that, not have one hair left? Because you're stabbing some, that's exertion. I mean, I bend over and I lose a hair on the carpet. Yeah. So there's no hair. There's no DNA. So the only the only thing that happened that, that was amazing was Betsy's socks, they were anklets, were half off her feet. Her heels were showing. So in 2021, the law enforcement found out that someone had taken those socks and used them as gloves because there was blood on them, but there was no blood on the feet that should have transferred through the sock if the victim was wearing the sock, plus all the blood was at her head. So she didn't step in her own blood. It looked like fingers were in the sock where the blood was. And I believe that person put the sock on, dipped it in her blood and swiped that light plate okay. and then dipped Russell's shoes in it. And finally, the weave pattern in that sock was also found on the knife handle hmm. in her neck. So they did find a minute amount of male DNA. Um, this incredible new prosecution team has re-interviewed everybody. They're still doing it, redoing all the DNA and trying to see if there's any link to that male DNA that was in the sock. But when I was talking with one of the detectives, I said, but the problem is that could come from anywhere. Betsy was at chemo all day long that day and probably was wearing her sock, kicked her shoes off. You're there three hours. Yes. It could have been picked up from an orderly, except it's on the inside of the sock. Yeah. But if she had them laying there inside out because she took her sock, I don't know. No, so they're, they're right. looking into that um, to see if she had an accomplice. I don't think she needed one. I mean, the one stab through the neck was all it took. Yeah. No, you're right about that. I, I mean, uh, you know, an orderly could have picked up the socks, could have grabbed it from, you know, it could have grabbed it from the heel side and had it, the fingers inside the sock, picked it up, grabbed, grabbed the socks, handed it to her at chemo, would have left some DNA or any w which way and could have left DNA there. You're right. Um, and if, 
if Pam is, is, as you say, is if she's as experienced as you're hypothesizing here at murder, she's gloved up. She's, you know, she's wearing some sort of a skull cap to, or something to keep hair in. Um, and she's not leaving any trace anywhere. Uh, and she's she's committing the act. So th- she's not being sloppy at all. Well, one thing that occurred to me after I wrote the book, because I've been talking to some friends, Patty Bath in Missouri is the one that called me and said, you got to hear this story. Um, but Patty, Patty and I were talking about it, and she said, you know, it's really easy to get those full cover painters overalls that zip up. Yep. And then you just throw them away. Yeah. And I said, oh, my gosh, they flip houses. Yeah. They probably had them out in the garage from painting these houses they flip. Mm -hmm. And she could have had a hairnet on and the painter's cap and the whole nine yards. Now, the the fact that whoever did this used Betsy's socks at the end makes me wonder about that. Did they have gloves on? Had something happened to the gloves? Because they did, whoever did, they did put their hand in it. You can see where the blood is. It may, it forms like two fingerprints where they dipped it okay. and swiped it. So they did use them as gloves at the end. Okay. And then they went to put them back on her feet, couldn't get it. They, they left one little bloody mark by her ankle, like they tried to hold her foot. And I think they just gave up and said, never mind, and mm-hmm. just left them half off and then left probably. Hmm. But no blood in the drains, no blood anywhere else in the house. They found a minute little um, stain on a green kitchen towel in the drawer, which amounted to nothing. So the the prosecution at that time actually said that they had done a luminol test and they found a trail of blood across the kitchen floor from Betsy, her blood leading to the kitchen to frame Russ. Mm-hmm. And when it came time for the trial, they said, Dad, gummit, those six pictures didn't develop. They came out black. You're just going to have to take our word for it. So one of the CSIs who you hire those, which I did not realize that they aren't part of the prosecution. They're not part of the defense. They're their own thing. This lady was so honest and she goes, nobody cleaned up that floor of blood or anything else. There were still dog treats laying on it. It was gritty and dirty. And so that's, I mean, that, I, I, unbelievable what they went through to, to frame this guy. Unbelievable. The book is Countdown to Murder, Pam Hupp, Death Insured. We have a link to it in the description of the show. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Alex Murdoch. The book is <laughs> Countdown to Murder, Alex Murdoch, Money, Murder, and Deception in South Carolina. Boy, if you thought that case was messed up, having to do with Pam Hupp, Boy, have we got twists and turns coming up in the second part of this interview. Our guest is uh, Rebecca F. Pittman. She is the author of both books. And we come back, Alex Murdaugh. Get ready for some twists and turns right here on The Best in True Crime Podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. Welcome back to True Crime Tuesday. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. We're talking... A dual murder, or our dual murderers today on True Crime Tuesday. Our guest is Rebecca F. Pittman. We're talking about both Pam Hupp and Alex Murdaugh and the Countdown to Murder series, 
with Rebecca F. Pittman, who is the author of both books, Countdown to Murder, Pam Hupp, Death Insured, and Countdown to Murder, Alex Murda, Money, Murder, and Deception in South Carolina. One of the hottest cases, I think, last year into this year had to do with Alex Murda and a lawyer in South Carolina. And uh, uh, Rebecca, let's bring you in now and, and talk about Alex Murda and a very powerful attorney in South Carolina, uh, had it all, had, had money, had, uh, had a, a huge caseload, was, was, had a lot of standing in the community in, in South Carolina that he lived in. Uh, if you were to say to the people in his community, oh, yeah, Alex Murda basically uh, you know, was accused of killing his housekeeper, killing his uh, wife and son, a lot of people, I think, would be shocked and are still are shocked to, to, to this day thinking, well, that, that's impossible. A man who they say had um, a drug problem. And other things. I, let's let's break down Alex Murdoch, shall we? I want to I want to rewind. I've thrown a lot out there and a lot to digest. But let's start first of all um, with a boat crash in February 2019, and why it's the catalyst for these different murders. Yes, uh, I, I think a lot of people believe that the that boat crash put the spotlight on what was going on. Uh, basically. Um, Alex had two sons, Buster and Paul. Paul was the youngest. Paul had a severe drinking problem. Everyone knew it. He had just rolled his truck the year before um, from drinking with his girlfriend in it. And uh, that night, uh, well, it was anyway, they went out, their six friends went out to an oyster roast in the low country by Beaufort. and, And Uh, Paul was driving Alex's boat. He'd already drank seven beers before they got on the boat. They went to the oyster roast where they drank a lot more. And when they left, it was very cold. I mean, it's February and it may be South Carolina, but it it was cold. And they get a low-hanging sea fog, which just hugs the water and it's hard to see through. And the boat didn't really have any regulation lights. Paul's friend Connor had to stand next to him with a flashlight and try to see through this. So Paul wasn't satisfied with the beers. He said, I'm, we're going to stop at Luther's. I want some shots. Okay. And the rest of the kids on the boat, which averaged close to 19 years old, 19 to 20, were going, we want to go home. One of them's going, I have to work tomorrow. It is now one in the morning. It's cold. And they couldn't talk him out of it. So they stop at this, you could stop at a dock, the day dock, walk up to it and go into this this restaurant. So he, uh, Paul and his, uh, the co-captain Connor went in, knocked back a couple of Jaegers and lemon drops. And by now this kid is on tilt. He is so drunk. Going back to the boat, they're begging him, mm-hmm. please let Anthony drive. And Anthony was Mallory Cook's boyfriend. And he wouldn't let him. He's yelling, it's my blank, blank boat. I'll drive the boat. So as they pull away, he almost hits the sailboat. Ooh. And then he makes the boat go in slow circles just to antagonize him. And they are getting really upset. And his girlfriend, who had decided by now, I'm done. She was in the truck he rolled the year before. Uh, she's yelling at him. He went up and slapped her, Ooh. spit in her face and called her a bunch of names and now they're all yelling at him and he's t- 
starts taking his clothes off, stripped down to his boxers, which they said he would do when he got that drunk. They called that new personality that came out Timmy. Timmy was the nickname when Paul was at the point of no return. Okay. He's in his boxers, and when he would leave the wheel, Connor would take it to steady the boat. But now with everybody yelling at him, he took the wheel, Paul, and just pushed the throttle over to full, and that thing took off at almost at 30 miles an hour at one point, which may not sound like a lot because um, yep. we're used to a car, but uh, when you're on the water... It's a lot, yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. Um, the Beaufort Search and Rescue uh, took me out on that boat with my husband and, and uh, two other people, Nick Ginn and, and Linda Ayer, and... When, he, when the, the boat captain, um, Roscoe, who was driving our boat, said, do you want to see what it feels like? When he pushed that thing over, my hair was like this. You can't see. You feel the boat front lift, mm -hmm. and you feel a sense of loss of control mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it's just – besides, that's the low country. It's a tidal system, and you've already got these tides pulling and pushing you. And so when, uh, when Paul did that – he, all of a sudden, one of the girls up front, Miley, looked up and went, look out, and it was too late. He hit the pilings to Archer's Bridge, Ooh. doing almost 30 miles an hour. He hit it just enough to the right that it, it made the boat do that. It ripped open the side of the boat, literally ripped it open. It hit two more pilings before it grounded on the bank. But Mallory, who was sitting on Anthony's lap when when Paul pushed the throttle over, Anthony being a protective boyfriend, got down on the boat bottom and held her. Unfortunately, that meant she was the first one to be ejected. Oh, my God. And she hit the piling. Um, blunt force trauma to the head, and then they believe she drowned. They caught sight of her long blonde hair for a minute, and she disappeared with those really strong currents. Just by fate, because the boat was still moving, Anthony was thrown out, but he missed the piling. And Paul was thrown out, and he missed the piling. Oh, my gosh. And when Anthony came to, he said, I was on the other side of the bridge. I realized Mallory's nowhere to be seen. The other two girls are screaming, Mallory, where are you? Um, Paul's girlfriend her hand had been on the outside of the boat when it hit the second piling. It severed three of her fingers, oh. lacerations. Oh. So she had to be taken in and had to do hand repair. Oh. Uh, it was just, and so anyway, Anthony looks over at Paul, who's clinging to a piling. And Anthony goes, just put your feet down. It's not that deep right there. And Paul put his feet down, struggles up to a rocky bank. And when Anthony can't find her, he finally comes to the bank and tackles him. Is this what you wanted? Is this, and it's the F words are flying. Connor finally calls 911. They had a hard time figuring out where they were. And they finally came. And the kids are all taken to the hospital, except um, Anthony, who refused to leave the bank. But he was what, trying to help them find Mallory. And so while these kids are in the hospital, 10 minutes after they got there, Alex Murdaugh and his father, Randolph, who was the solicitor, uh, I believe he had retired as solicitor at that point, but he carried a lot of weight. Mm -hmm. The family had been the solicitor for Hampton County, for the 14th Circuit, for almost 100 years. 
They walk in, take over. Alex makes sure his associate, his volunteer solicitor's badge is showing, hanging out of his pocket. And they tell those kids, don't say anything. And the first thing Alex said is, I'm your attorney. I'll take care of it. Don't say anything. And before the, he knew it, they Alex was actually telling the police Connor was driving the boat, not Paul. And Connor started realizing, I'm in trouble. They're wow. going to sacrifice me. Jeez. Isn't that something? That's amazing. So while all this was happening, that's when the rumors started. And people said, you need to look into the Stephen Smith case. It took Mallory's death. They didn't find her for a week. Uh, it's just... It's heart-wrenching. Um, you need to look into Stephen Smith, who was a young 19-year-old boy in 2015 who was found beaten up and left dead in the middle of a road in Hampton County. And you need to look into Gloria Satterfield, who was the housekeeper for the Murdochs for 20 years. She helped raise Paul and Buster. Paul was only two when she came on. He adored her. He followed, followed her everywhere and called her Go-Go. And um, so that's your that's why what you said is correct. It was that boat crash that put the spotlight on some of these other things that had been swept under the carpet. That is amazing. Um, and this just starts unpeeling in front of us in the media, one after another after another. And tell us how Alex himself is put on trial. Because Alex, this is kind of fascinating that all of a sudden he's the one that's, that's put front and center. Well, again, it was the boat crash. Um, the attorney for the beaches for Mallory's family uh, was um, Mark Tinsley. And this was looking like Paul was going to get away with it. He did finally appear in court. They did indict him. And there was a civil trial coming up. The Beaches wanted some kind of acknowledgement that their daughter's gone. In the meantime, Paul changed nothing. He was seen out the very next day and weekend partying and drunk on a boat again, like nothing had happened. Somebody took private pictures of him at college, blitzed. And I mean, that's right in your face. Your daughter's gone. Nothing's happening to this wealthy kid with all this power in his family. So Mark Tinsley went after him. And because um, Paul really obviously doesn't have any money, they listed Alex and Maggie, who was Paul's mother, and the convenience store that sold Paul alcohol and these other people in a lawsuit. So in order for them to go after Alex, Alex was going to have to show them his financials. Oh. And he had been scamming his, his own insurance companies, well, the insurance companies for his own clients since 2005. Jeez. This is 2019, 2020. He had been stealing millions from clients who had been hurt in some way. He was, they were personal injury attorneys putting it in his own bank, made up a, a bank called Forge, putting money in there in the millions. And he's going, if they get to look at my bank accounts, I'm screwed. Yeah. 
And that's what led to the murders. The morning of the murders of his wife, Maggie, and his son, Paul, he was at work at the law firm. And Jenny Seconder came in, who's the CFO, who was, they were just beginning to figure out, something's wrong here. Where are the fees from these cases? Because the fees for Alex or any of the attorneys were supposed to be made out to the law firm. Mm -hmm. And then the law firm dispersed it after expenses are taken out. And they're going, where are the fees? There's $393 right now. Where is it? So she'd had it. He kept dodging her. And on the morning of the murder, she cornered him. He shows you, I want it now. I want to know where this check is right now. And he got a call just then from his brother, Randy, saying, Dad just went back into the hospital again with cancer. And this is the same Randolph that had been at the hospital with Alex doing damage control after the bulk case. So it's a double whammy. He's out of time. And daddy, who has always bailed him out and given him money when he ran out because he spent it all, is back in the hospital on and hospice. And it's not looking good. In fact, he did die that week. Um, So... I think in his mind, what he did was he'd been doing business with Palmetto State Bank with Russell Lafitte, his good friend for a long time. Russell had been helping him funnel that money mm-hmm. for a fee. So Russell knew about it. Um, and so he goes back to him for more money to cover that check Jenny's hounding him about. And Russell goes, I, my, his dad was also an owner of the bank, Russell's dad. He goes, he's telling me I can't help you anymore, Alex, without collateral. Well, their big 1,700-acre hunting property called Moselle, Alex had put it in Maggie's name a long time ago so that if anybody came after him, it was safe. It was just a tax evasion thing that people do, but it's in her name. Yeah. And they, I believe, were about to divorce. They were separated. She was living at the beach house in Edisto. I think she told him no. Mm. And I think that's the countdown to murder that day. He is desperate if they find out what he's been doing with all that money and that he has a fake fake bank account. That's prison. Yeah. I mean, that's insurance fraud. That's embezzlement. That's in his games up that he's been running pretty well for a long time. So this was all last minute, Tim. That's what's so amazing. People think, oh, he must have been scheming for a long time. That only happened right after lunch that day that Jenny cornered him. He calls Maggie and says, can you come home for dinner? And we only start hearing it in Maggie's text messages to the to the housekeeper. Like, could you fix dinner? I'm in Charleston. I'm going to be late. Alex just called, wants me to come home. This was pretty much last minute. And then we have Paul, unfortunately, coming home because with Randolph going in the hospital, um, Paul's uncle, John Marvin, who Paul was working for down in Beaufort during the summer, had to go get him. Long story short, he needed Paul to drive his truck back home for him. So Paul went up to get the truck, which was 20 minutes from Moselle, and he decides to have dinner with his mother as well. And, And Paul is there. I also think Alex was on board for Paul being there because he already had someone in mind to take the fall for the murder of Maggie. 
He wanted Paul to get their groundskeeper, C.B. Rowe, out to take care of some sunflowers that died that they needed for the dove hunt. So that Paul was to keep C.B. on the property, but far enough away and running a very noisy tractor that they wouldn't hear the gunshot Uh when Alex killed Maggie. And then he was going to throw C.B. under the bus as the murderer. Okay. Um, So that's where we are right now. Okay. Um, you, you had mentioned Stephen Smith. Let's go backwards a little bit. You'd mentioned that there were these other murders that people said, well, you want to, you want to look at, at the murders. You want to look at the, the precedents here and, and you want to see why the murders are so dangerous and why there's a precedent here. You'd mentioned Stephen Smith. You'd mentioned Gloria Satterfield. Let's dig into Stephen Smith in 2015 for a minute, this precedent of why the the Murdaws are so dangerous. What was it about Stephen Smith? What happened in 2015? Stephen, when I interviewed his mother, it ripped my heart out. I I got a sense of this amazingly witty, wonderful young man who just wanted to be a doctor and go into other countries and help people that couldn't afford it. Um, He was in nursing school. He was about to start his clinicals. He was on his way. He was an openly gay young man, but everybody loved him. He was actually worked with the athletes in high school. If they got injured because he was learning nursing, he was like an athletic trainer kind of thing. Uh, But suddenly there was this thing going around that, that he was telling his sister and his mom that he was starting to have a relationship with a, with someone in a quote, prominent family. Okay in Hampton, and if they knew who it was, it would blow the doors off of Hampton. Okay. Well, so that rumor started, um, but again, he told his sister and his mother that. Then the night that Stephen died, it was actually early morning, but the night before that, um, some guys had gone to a softball tournament and come back, and we know the names of the people that were in the truck and bus, it was Buster, Buster Murdoch's truck and he was driving. And so all we know is at four o'clock AM, the next morning after the softball game, Stephen, who was 19 is found in the middle of a rural road. His face is laid open from his eyebrow back, like something had just struck him hard. And there's so much blood pooling out of the back of his head. It's gushing across the road. So it's obvious he hasn't been laying there very long. This blood is fresh. It hasn't coagulated. And this guy's on his way to work at 4 a.m. and sees this kid, almost hit him, went around him. He was so afraid that he went another mile to a stop sign before he called 911 because he didn't know if the murderers were still around. Mm-hmm. And, um, so it started out, they said, oh, when law enforcement got there, well, it's a hit and run. Uh, no, there was no road debris. There was nothing from a, a, a car. Usually there's debris of some kind. If a car hits you that hard, yeah. no skid marks. The kid looked like somebody had literally just laid him down there. There's no blood anywhere like he bounced or any of that. His shoes that were loosely tied are still on his feet. His cell phone's in his pocket. 
and there's nothing on him, like a bumper striking you or anything. Oh, well, it must have been the side view mirror hit him. And all of the police that first responded went, this is not a hit and run. No. So then there was a hole above his eyebrow, and they said, oh, well, somebody shot him. So this is just going all over the place. And during the autopsy, they said that nobody shot him. There's no bullet fragments. And it went back, must have been a hit and run. So the rumor mill... And this is, you know, reason the Murdaws were brought in was the rumors. And these are, you know, 18, 19 year olds that rumors can spread really fast. And it was, I heard Buster Murdoch did it. Then it was, I heard Buster and some other guys after the softball game saw Stephen walking down the street late at night. He'd run out of gas and was going to try to go home or go get gas. And just to mess with him, they hung a baseball bat out the window and hit him. Well, he was found three miles from his car. His wallet was still in the car, which you'd need if you're going to go get gas. Right. They had hung the gas cap out for staging, which if you're out of gas, you don't. And what are you going to do? Peek in the hole to see if there's any in there? You don't take the cap off yet. Yeah. It was it was a disaster. But because of Buster's name 40 times on their police reports, that started going around, and when Stephen's poor mother was told, she was headed for the funeral home to identify him and start preparing, and Alex and Randy were standing at the crime scene. Um, the body had been taken into the funeral home, but Randy called her. He goes, was that you that just went by? And she said, yes. He said, well, if I'd known, I would have said Hi. And so everybody's thinking, okay, they may be personal injury attorneys, but this is a a kid with their family has no money. And Randy calls him at the sheriff's office and talks to the dad and says, I'll I'll represent you for free. And the dad hasn't even gone in and identified the body yet. And he goes, represent me for what? Yeah, It's not even a crime yet. We don't even know what happened. And then what was told to police was Randy showed up at Sandy's house, Stephen's mother's, and said, I need his passwords to all his, to his phone and every, I need his electronics. Why would you need that for a hit and run? Right. And so that's where it was left for a long time. That's why you hear the Murdoch name associated with it. Fair or not, it's in the police reports. Um, so this year, right after the trial ended in March, they exhumed Stephen Smith's body and got a completely new independent autopsy done. Um, and we're waiting for results. The news is it could be out by Labor Day, which is coming up yeah. about four weeks. So we've all been waiting to hear. But now some of the people who are getting, like the attorneys that are getting pieces of it, are mm-hmm. saying, we don't think it was a bat. Hmm. And we believe he was killed right where he was found. I believe he was hit somewhere else and placed where he was found. And there were places in the back of the head that looked like he'd been beat up in the back of the head, too. And they're now confirming that. I think they dropped him there, and it might be that that reopened the wounds in the back when they just threw him. Well, one girl said she heard they threw him out of the back of the truck. Jeez. So I think they were hoping another car would run over him in the dark and kind of cover up what they'd done to him. I think you're right. I mean, that, that sounds probably like the most feasible scenario. 
Yeah. But nobody is guilty till it's proven. Buster had came out this year after the trial ended with that, with his father and said, I, enough. I didn't do this. I'm grieving my the loss of my mother and my brother and my dad's now incarcerated and I had nothing to do with this. So we need to remember that those were reports that came in in 2015, but nothing so far has been proven. They did just have a grand jury and they said they had six people of interest, but what they're now saying is they were the witnesses that are coming forward because they believe several people were involved in this. Okay. Uh, the other person they say to look at, if you want evidence that the Murdaws aren't on the up and up is Gloria Satterfield in the incident in 2018. What happened with Gloria Satterfield? Well, Alex's version was that she had come by Moselle to pick up a check from his mother because she would do work for Alex's mother. This way, instead, you know, she usually came to work mm. at 8.30, 8, 8.30 every morning. But if she had fallen during work, that's a workman's cop suit, and he's looking for much bigger dollars. So he changed it to say she just came by to pick up a check that morning. So supposedly, as she's going up the brick steps to the house, his dogs tripped her, got excited to see her and tripped her, and she fell backwards and split her skull open. So that's Alex's story. Um, there's so many lies and so many problems with it. it it's... Uh, but so Maggie makes a 911 call. She's standing on the top stair looking down at Gloria, who's laying on her back with her feet still up on the second rung, bleeding out of her head, mumbling. And Maggie calls 911, tells them she sounds exasperated and put out, but you never get a sense of caring. This woman has been with them for 20 years. Yeah. And it sounds more like she's put out. And so the 911 operator was a little annoying. She kept asking her the same questions until finally Maggie gave up and, and handed the phone to Paul, who was there. Um, and here's the interesting part. A lot of people wanted to know. A lot of people were debating, was Alex even there? A lot of them were saying he wasn't even there because the groundskeeper said when he got there, Alex wasn't there. This one I'm a little proud of. Okay. I kept playing the 911 call in this space of 30 seconds when Maggie hands that phone off to Paul. Mm -hmm. I heard voices okay. in the background. And when I enhanced it, you hear a male voice ask Paul something. And Paul goes, we didn't give her anything. And then you hear Alex, distinctly Alex, go, good. So we have an exact timestamp of when he showed up, which was about three minutes into that phone call at 927. Yet, according to Maggie, she didn't call him at work until 945 oh, wow. to tell him that she that that Gloria had fallen. And there were all of these lies. So that's the story that he was telling. Um, there's just so many inconsistencies. So Gloria goes, the, they take her away in the ambulance. She's in the hospital for three weeks. And here's the second part of the suspicion here. She was getting better. Really? Um, she was on, you know, she was in intensive care, mm -hmm. on breathing tube, all of that. But the night before she died, 
they've moved her out of ICU into a private room and her friend was there who I interviewed quite a bit for the book and told me, she goes, Rebecca, she was getting better. Her legs were moving. She was talking. Her sister said that when she was there that night, she goes, I love you, Gloria. She goes, I love you too. She was talking and, and coming around, even the orderly commented on it. The next morning she's dead. Weird. So I don't know if it's because she was rallying and could tell what actually happened to her that day. And this is just my supposition. But when I read the death details that the hospital said, what stuck out to me was two things that went wrong with her. They said at one time they found her tracheal tube pushed clear back in the back of her throat. And another one with one of the IV bags or something, some some arterial thing was in the wrong place. So what stuck out to me, the insurance company interviews Paul and Alex and Maggie before they hand over $4 million, mm-hmm. actually two policies, one's 500000 the other one's $4 million. So, of course, they're going to look into it. Yeah. Maggie's statement flew off the page at me. She said, well, I went to visit Gloria five times in the hospital, but I, I never went alone. What? I thought... Who says that? Yeah. And then she did it again later in the interview. She goes, yes, I did. I went to see her, but I was never alone. I thought that is a really interesting thing to say. Yeah. Um, do you agree with me? Don't you think that's kind of weird? It's very fishy. And then does she ever name who she went with? Exactly. Wouldn't you just say Paul and I went to see her or yeah, she never yeah. she never says who was with her. She just makes it a point that she wasn't by herself. Right. If it's I could say I could see saying, well, you know, I, I went five times, three times I went with so and so, two times I went with so and so if you're being thorough. But you never say I I went five times and I never went alone. That that, that to me incurs guilt. It does. That that There's a reason you said that. Yeah. That, and I and to do it twice in the interview. Yeah, that that's weird to me. That you're covering something. That you're trying to cover something. Yeah, that's very strange. Very strange indeed. So, so the kicker is, good old Alex. He's put away, and I know we haven't talked about the double murders of his wife and son, but he got convicted. He's doing two consecutive or two life sentences for that. Well, that, that's not good enough. He's in prison. He's still not through. He comes out now after all these years and said, I lied. My dogs didn't trip her. He's trying now to get out of the the lawsuit coming from these insurance companies that he got the money for Gloria falling 4.5 that he was supposed to give her sons. So they never got a dime. Not really? a dime. And they, she was their only breadwinner. They were living in a trailer while this was going on. They would get hold of Alex, and they thought of him as family. I mean, their mother had been with him 20 years. He goes, no, I don't have the money yet, but it's progressing. He'd had the money for two months. And they're saying, we're about to lose our home. We're, we're going we're gonna to get evicted. And all these medical bills for her are coming in. He didn't give them any of the money. Whoa. And it was all gone within months. Oh, my God. 
so now he's saying the dogs didn't trip her. So he's now trying to make those poor boys give back the money that someone else gave them. Some of these other institutions stepped up and tried to give them some money because they felt so badly for them. Just evil. Uh, evil incarnate. Let's, let's skip now to the mother and Paul. And, okay. and, and the fact that they were killed. I want to get to that night, and I want to talk about that that night. I mean, we talked a little bit about, about his wife uh, and, and the wife being killed, but I want to get into that in, in depth. Um, because Paul really was, I don't want to say the prodigal son, but the, the favored son, I guess is the best way to put it, right? People have gone back and forth about that. Um, a lot of people said Maggie was closer to Buster. Buster was going to, to carry the family mantle and become a lawyer. Paul really didn't want to do that. He wanted to own Moselle someday. He loved that place. In He loved hunting. Huge hunting facility. He mm -hmm. wanted to own that. That's where his heart was. So a lot of people have said Buster was her favorite, but she obviously loved both of them dearly. Um so I don't know if I would call him the golden child. He kept getting in to a lot of trouble and the drinking. In fact, at one point before his grandfather, Randolph, died of cancer, Randolph told Alex, if you don't take care of him, I'm going to. I mean, he just wouldn't stop drinking. So Take care of him in what way? In a diabolical way? I don't think so. I, a lot of people have tried to, to surmise that. I think it was like you tell anybody, if you don't take care of your son and rainy men kind of thing is okay. what I think he meant. Because is, wasn't there a rumor that there were other generations of the Murdaws that took care of things in diabolical ways? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, they were, it, I mean, his, um, his grandfather Randolph, his other grand great grandfather Buster, they were all indicted on drug running. <laughs> there was rumors that they were cheating their clients. There were other people that suddenly disappeared. It was yeah, it was you know the family that sins together wins together. So I don't <laughs> I don't know, but yeah, it was a long legacy. So you've got you've got the wife who evidently isn't going along anymore with Alex's shenanigans. And then you've got Paul who obviously is causing problems and with the boating accident and, and whatnot. And Randolph says, if you don't rein him in, I will. Well, Alex has some loose ends to uh, sum up. So I guess he needs to sum them up. How does he go about doing it? Well, you have to remember that when the murders took place, the civil case for that boat crash was in three days. Okay. Now, this was a hearing, but at that hearing, if the judge put the hammer down and told Alex, you need to open your books, that they have a right to look at your financials, they're trying to file a settlement agreement. So that was coming up in three days. And I think part of him thought, not only killing Maggie, I now get Moselle, which was worth three point some million. Mm -hmm. That's going to really get me out of this mess. Who's going to make us go through with that court case, that hearing when we just lost our mother and wife? And I think that was 
part of it. He thought there's because he'd done that before, postponed things by some chaos happening. So I do believe that was part of it. Um, and uh, Jim Griffin, who was Alex's attorney, was also Paul's attorney for the boat crash case. Jim said they believed that it was winnable, but Paul could have been found not guilty because there was reasonable doubt that Connor may have been driving. He thought it was a winnable case, which is why I don't think Paul was supposed to die that night, but I'll get back to that. Um, okay. So anyway, Maggie's telling people, I don't want to go back for dinner. I've got remodelers at the beach house. I'm having a big 4th of July thing coming up. I don't want to, but his dad's in the do and her sister said you need to go which her sister when she got on the stand during the trial was just bawling like she felt it was her fault that she encouraged her to go home so supposedly they had dinner together i don't believe that alex was even part of the dinner he couldn't tell them what the conversation was he couldn't tell them when it started or when it ended i think he was getting things set up mm -hmm. So after dinner, he said Maggie was going to go down to the kennels. The dog kennels are a couple of hundred yards from the house. Her two favorite dogs are in there. Sometimes she would take them to the beach house, but because of the remodeling, I think she was just going to let them out and let them run and um, play with them for a few minutes and then head home, head back to Edisto. So... What was interesting was that his story kept changing, and he said, so she left the house, and he wouldn't give a time for a while. Finally, they pinned him down to 8.30 because of the GPS on her car and some other stuff. And he goes, I don't know where Paul went. He got through eating and was around the house somewhere. I don't know where he was. Then for the longest time, he said he never went down to the kennels. He laid down after dinner, took a nap. When he woke up, it was 9 o'clock. He got hold of Maggie, texted her, said, I'm going to go over and see how mom's doing because, you know, Randolph was back in the hospital, her, his mom's husband. Mm -hmm. and, he's, I'm, and she had dementia. She couldn't tell if you were in the room or not, but he wanted to go check on her. Claims Maggie didn't answer the text. Text Paul. Paul didn't answer the text. He heads out anyway and goes the 20 minutes to his mother's house stays according to him 40 and it kept growing uh according to the caregiver who was there for the nurse or the nurse for the mom she said he was there uh 15 to 20 minutes okay. he tried to get her to say he was there for 30 to 40 and she wouldn't do it in fact she looked sick to her stomach on the stand and started crying she didn't even want to admit that he had tried to get her to lie his time span kept growing. At one point, he said, I was there 45 minutes to an hour, which was impossible because he couldn't have made the 911 call when he did upon finding their bodies. Right. So, spends time with his mother, comes back, goes to the house, realizes Maggie and Paul aren't there yet. So, he goes down to the kennels in his headlights, see the most horrific scene in the world. There's his wife face down blood all around her head and only a few feet from her was his son paul face down feet still in the feed room of the dog kennels he was face down and 
his brain was laying next to his feet. And he says he tried to check him for signs of life and then called 911. So that was Alex's story. What was Alex's demeanor when he called 911? Was it unusual? People have gone back and forth saying it was almost like ready action, that you don't hear anything until 911 says 911. I disagree. Uh, what a lot of people don't know is that call is actually recording before they say 911. Mm -hmm. You hear him shrieking and sobbing okay. uh, before she says it. And that's another reason I don't think Paul was supposed to die. And I think some of the grief you hear in his wailing is authentic. It's genuine. Um, okay. But then he's running all over the place. And what's interesting is it's the dogs in the kennel that act like a barometer for that phone call. You can hear how close he is at one point with the loud barking. And then there's times you don't hear the dogs at all. Okay. And then he's back again and he's out of breath. And then finally he tells the 911 operator, I'm going to run back up to the house and get a shotgun. I'm going to go get a gun. I don't feel safe. Okay. So he's up there at the house. Supposedly, he was there only like a minute and a half. He wasn't there very long. Comes back down, starts up the thing again. Ma'am, when are they going to be here? And crying. And so finally, he goes, I need to hang up. I need to call my family. And she goes, well, they're almost there. Put your flashers on so they can see you. And then we have body cam footage of the first um, police officers on the scene. It's really eerie, Tim it's so dark. Yeah. I mean, and there's the, the hangar, which is this huge, you know, it's like for an airplane is right there. I mean, Paul's head's only inches from it. It's usually lit up like the 4th of July. There's no lights on. And when the policeman pulls up, his headlights are shining right past Paul's body. And Alex is at the end in a brilliant white t-shirt. And for some reason he was over, on the other side of his car, and he ran back real quick, right when they were shooting this. I don't think he realized. I don't know what he was doing. But when Officer Green gets up to him, he's standing next to Maggie's body, only a couple of feet, pulling on his white shirt and just saying, um, I, it was the boat crash. I know that's what this is. It was the boat crash because these people were harassing Paul and saying he did it and he wasn't ever going to go. I know that's what this is. And then he points at his car and he goes, by the way, that gun's loaded. And you might want, I grabbed it because I was scared. You might want to unload it. So officer green takes it and locks it in his patrol car. And then the rest of it, we pretty much know his story that he, it was basically what we just went over. It's yeah. what they interviewed him and he said. Yeah, yeah. But he claimed he was never at the kennels until a year later, they finally cracked Paul's phone and found out he had been making a video only minutes before they were murdered and Alex's voice is on it. And that is when the hatchet came down. Yeah, it's it's like him talking from the grave. It is so eerie. I don't think Alex thought he was down there. And Maggie's washing out the pens while the two dogs are running. So she's blocking Alex's view of Paul inside a dark pen. 
and he's just using Snapchat to videotape his dog, the dog tail of his friend. He's keeping this dog for his friend, and he thinks something's wrong with the tail. It's only 54 seconds, very short. And he, all he does is just very softly say, Cash, get down. And he's trying to film his tail, and you hear Maggie, who's obviously much closer to him, mm-hmm. The dogs are running. She goes, ah, he's got a bird in his mouth. It's a guinea. And you you hear Alex much farther away go, it's a chicken. And Paul, who's right next to Maggie, said, it's a chicken. And then he goes, hey, Bubba, which means the dog's running around. And you hear Alex yell, Bubba, come here. And that was the end of the video. And I think at that point, Paul walked up to the feed shed, which was about five pins up for a better cell phone connection to send the video to his friend. Plus his battery was at 2%. And within those few minutes, it all went down. Wow. And it proved Alex lied. He was at the kennels. He Minutes before Paul shot the video, he was on the phone with the boy that owned the dog and the boy heard him during that phone call. He heard his voice and identified it as Alex. So within three minutes after that video ended and you hear Alex, they were gunned down. You're going to tell me that he got out of it. And he was trying to say that he just talked to him for a minute and actually said, and then I got out of there. And Creighton Waters, the prosecuting attorney during his murder trial, said, yeah, you did. You got out of there, didn't you? And he claims that minute, two-minute ride in the golf cart back to the house that he didn't even hear gunshots. I mean, seven gunshots. So Paul was killed with a shotgun, a Benelli, once to the chest, and the other one entered his shoulder up through his jaw and blew the top of his head off. Oh, my God. And Maggie was shot four to five times with an AR-15 rifle. So two different guns, which never made any sense. No, that doesn't make sense at all. Was it, do you think he was trying to make it look like there were multiple killers? Like it was maybe... Uh, some, like you said, he had, he had stated to the officer that this was retribution for the boat crash. Do you mm-hmm. think he was trying to make it look like it was a multiple attack? Like it was, you know, like it was maybe a family that came after them? Well, I realize my opinion flies in the face of the trial because they didn't present it as a possibility. But here's what I think. I think Paul was in the feed room. He was texting a girl that was trying to find out about what movie they were going to go see at some point. I think Alex had gone after Bubba, the dog, had circled around the hangar, and now he's going to shoot Maggie. Mm -hmm. The last time he saw her, she's in front of the pens with a hose. She finished that, walked to her car and checked what her car was right there and checked text messages to see if there was an update on Alex's father. I think Alex, thinking that was the last place he saw her, had the assault rifle ready and he walked past that open feed room door. And I think Paul turned and saw him or there was a yell or there was something that caught his attention and Paul, his friend said Paul was always with a gun. And I believe Paul's Benelli, it was his favorite shotgun, was with him in the feed room, possibly leaning up against the wall. 
I think Paul grabbed the barrel of that gun. Alex dove in. This is tiny. This room is so tiny. Yeah. It's 10 feet long, but it's full of clutter, and you there's nowhere to move. And I think Alex grabbed the gun from him from the butt end. I think that Paul had the barrel end, and when he did, it went off. Ah. And Paul was at an angle, and it hit his chest here, skittered across, went out under his left arm, and most of it went out the window behind him, leaving these bullet holes. And they actually said Paul took minutes. He didn't didn't kill him. They said he would have survived that one. Took minutes to walk to the open door, and they could tell by the, the dripping of the blood from this arm and his footprints. If Alex meant to shoot him, why didn't he just go ahead and do it again? Or what I'm thinking is you've got an AR-15. If you meant to kill that boy, you would have just shot him in the head or in the chest instead of this sloppy. But he left him like that. And I think it's because Maggie hearing the first shot had come running and grabbed him and was trying to pull him away because her DNA is found on the front and back of that white T-shirt that smelled like it just came out of the laundry. All of them testified to that. Okay. And I think when she did, that's when that second shot went off that was really low. Okay. It went up through his shoulder and his head. It was a really odd angle. And I think that's because she had grabbed him. Then I think the shotgun got dropped. He's picking up the AR-15, and there is a ground strike right there, right outside the feed room that was marker 13 in the investigation where a bullet entered the ground. And then the next thing you know, he shoots her in the thigh and she's only three feet from him. They're still in front of the feed room. I believe that bullet exited and went through the hangar. Then the next shot doesn't kill her either. And it goes in through here and she's backing up. This shows to me there's a struggle going on at the feed room. This doesn't look planned and methodical. No. And Kenny Kinsey, who was the reconstruction expert, said this looked last minute. It looked chaotic. And so for those reasons, I don't think he went there to kill Paul. I think it must have been the shock of a lifetime when he went past that open door and his son's standing right there. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. It, I, I think you've nailed it. I, yeah, It's so sad. Yeah. So I thought, well, then why didn't the prosecution or the defense say that? Yeah. Because then he wouldn't be two premeditated murders. And the reason I believe the prosecution didn't was they didn't want that jury to feel sorry for him for one second. I think if there was any doubt in their mind that it wasn't premeditated, he could get off lighter I do believe they just thought, let's just go for it, that he killed both of them. And again, this is just my opinion, Tim. I don't know. But that whole scene made absolutely no sense to me at all. Right. Right. No, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. He, he probably went there meaning to kill his ex or his wife. He, his wife didn't mean to kill his son, but did. Well, why would you let him walk clear to the door before you shoot him again? Yeah. I mean, Paul's head and shoulder was just outside the door when the second shot, the fatal shot, 
killed him, and it was at an angle like this. It was like somebody had shot from their ankle. Yeah. yeah. None of this makes any sense. No, no, it it doesn't. It doesn't. Um. So with with Alex Murdoch today, I mean, as as it stands right now, he's obviously in jail, and mm-hmm. and where where do things stand with him now? Where are we at with him now? Because it seems like. Everything is so discombobulated, or is it? Is it quite clear? No, it got quiet for a little while, but he they let they let it be known they were going to try for an appeal right during sentencing, which he has a right. I'm sure they're working on an appeal because to them, they thought it was wrong that all his financial stealing and embezzlement was allowed in as testimony against him. They felt that was undue prejudice to prejudice the jury against him. I'm pretty sure the appeal is going to be because that should not have been allowed in. And they, his defense attorneys fought and fought to get that kept out and judge Newman let it in. So there will probably be appeals. Um, In the meantime, he still has to be brought up on over 100 counts of insurance fraud and embezzlement. So all of that's coming up. His partner, Russell Lafitte from Palmetto State Bank just had his sentencing seven years in prison. Uh, They've let him go home for a little bit to get his affairs in order, but he'll be in prison for seven years. And um, Alex's other accomplice, Corey Fleming, who's an attorney who also helped him embezzle the clients, his court case is coming up, I think, next month in September. So you've still got those. You've got the results from the grand jury for Stephen Smith. The Gloria Satterfield's family originally, when SLED, the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, approached them, said, yes, you can exhume her body. Because some of the things we're showing, her ribs were broken, uh, uh, her her rib cage cavity was collapsed. Her lung was punctured. All and and all of the things to the top of her head just from falling backwards down three or four stairs. Uh, and they and it's on both sides of her body. So, but now when I interviewed her son, who is the sweetest thing in the world, um, he said he doesn't want his mother's body exhumed. So I don't know if they're going to go forward with that or not, especially now that he's saying, well, the dog didn't trip her. I think they kind of had it, but they might. Hmm. He still had this young man is amazing, Tim. He has people comma. I'm going seriously. And his voice cracks and he starts crying and it just rips me apart. I mean, these young men are amazing and kind. There's no malice. They're getting on with their lives. They work really hard. It just makes you so angry. Yeah. And yeah. now he's trying to take what money they got. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot. Sorry. I get emotional about this stuff because oh, I get right. very close to these people and it, it just angers me, but I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I don't blame you. I'd 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 be furious as well if it were me. Um, wow. Both books. I encourage you, folks. We've got uh, links to both books. I encourage you to to get both of them 
and and look further into it. There's we've just scratched the surface on both of them. Uh, Countdown to Murder, Alex Murdaugh, Money, Murder, and Deception in South Carolina is a book we've been talking about in the second half here. Countdown to Murder, Pam Hupp, Death Insured is the other one. Uh, Rebecca F. Pittman, I thank you so much for being with us on the program here. And we got to have you back to talk paranormal on on uh, darkness radio on on the thursday edition uh because we've got some subjects we haven't talked about yet stanley hotel and myrtle's plantation um well to be honest i'm i'm more afraid of the living now than i am the ghosts i know <laughs> so right sure yeah we can do that and and please thank your your listeners they've been so kind with purchasing the books and if you do i'd love your review on amazon they really do help but Absolutely. please have me back. I enjoy yes. you so much. Yes, we'll do that very soon because I, I do want to, I do especially want to talk about Myrtles. We haven't talked about Myrtles in, in quite a while here on the show. That's a so. fascinating place. I was yeah. just there last month. It's it's amazing. Yeah, well, we'll have you back definitely. I think probably in the next month or so. So we'll, we'll bring Love you it. back and we'll, we'll yeah, talk Halloween. Myrtles. Yes, yes, we've got Halloween coming up. Uh, so yeah, we'll, we'll definitely talk. Oh, in, in uh, the Palace of Versailles. We we may have to uh, we may have to do a, a couple of shows here. We may have a couple of shows here, Rebecca. So uh, yeah, most definitely. So thank you so much for being with us, Rebecca. It's always a joy to be on your show. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Rebecca. Uh, folks, it's time now for us to lighten things up a bit. It's time for us to bring in Beer City Bruiser, and it's time for dumb crimes and stupid criminals. It's it's crayon news story time. <laughs> What happened with this dude, Christbearer? I heard he uh, cut his penis off and then jumped off a balcony. Suspect pulls gun from butt, shoots twice at Denver police. What is your emergency? I don't know. And what's the problem? I'm too high. You're too high? Yeah. It's that time again, that time you all look forward to. It's time for Dumb Crimes and Stupid Criminals. And we bring in the one, the only, the co-host with the most, the BCB, the big cuddly bear himself, Beer City Bruiser. Bruiser, how you doing? Oh, I am doing fantastic, Cruiser. How are you doing today? Not too bad. I saw over the weekend, uh, doing a little remodeling. <laughs> they call it the uh, tobacco road remodeling. Uh, they call it uh, blowing it up and starting all over again. <laughs> it, it, am i wrong what oh the bathroom incident yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah well now that i'm off all the meds for mm. the surgery and stuff my system's going back to normal i see and i take a yes. i take a probiotic and i take a multivitamin oh. and then oh. other healthy supplements you know and I... uh then Mrs. Bruiser also, we're getting a new fridge, uh-huh. so we have to empty all the stuff out of our old fridge, the freezer, so we've been cooking <laughs> okay. everything, yeah. and she's making outstanding meals as she always does, yeah. and it's just home-cooked meals plus all that other stuff equals uh, a lot of cabbage, a <laughs> lot, lot of, yeah. lot of air, air it out before you go in there. I see. A Febreze is your friend, is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, the reason I put it in the post is because she kept yelling at me oh. that she doesn't need to know every time I do it. I think I'm just being courteous. I think you are. I think it makes for a good marriage just to say, yeah. hey, you know what? Uh, don't go in there for about 35, 45 minutes. Yeah. Just, and the last one, yeah. even the dogs won't go in there. Talia looked wow. at me and she's like, are you okay? I'm fine, <laughs> Talia. I'm good. Maybe you ought to do that outside is what Talia said to you. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, mm. 
I go outside. Why can't you? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. But Ziggy, yeah. Ziggy looked at me impressed. She was like, that, that, that boy, yeah, that's, way to go. Way to lay it down. <laughs> that's a good one. Because she's not the diva. Talia's the diva. Uh, well, that's, that's how it works. Uh, yeah. Uh, do we need to send you a lifetime surpri- supply, surpri- a lifetime <laughs> surpri- of uh, not rice aroni, but um, of April fresh uh, Febreze? No, no, it'll be good. I just got, my system's just got to get back to not having all that medication in it. You know what it's like. Hey, I, I know? take something for, you know, I'm on the, I'm on the heavy stuff. I'm on the morphine. Yeah. 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 So that's what they had me started with. And then, you know, they teeter off. And now that I have no pain, it's just Tylenol if I, if I do have pain. Yeah. But that stuff binds you up so much, you're constantly taking the stool softeners. And now that I'm not all bound up, yeah. it's just like, <laughs> here we go. Yeah, I, t- I take a uh, an all-natural deal. It's a, it's a big uh, big brown pill. We won't get into it, but it, I mean, otherwise we'll start sounding like old men. But Well, we are old men. But, you know, they, 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 there's a, I forget what they call the pill. Anyways, it's a, it's a big brown pill I take every day. Um, but that keeps you regular. Yeah. 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 And I'm just, I got good fiber. Like I said, we're eating good meals. We're eating healthy. I'm trying to stay healthy. Even though I'm not in the ring, I want to still stay healthy. Yeah. Now that I don't have to weigh the weight I am, I want to actually lose a couple pounds and get a little svelte, as they say. Yeah. It's it's made of vegetable matter. Okay. That big brown pill. Yeah. 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 I had, I had one, my doctor suggested for a natural one. It's something that's based, it's prune based. Really? And it was a, it was a big brown pill too, but he said it was prune based. He said it was like prunes and some other vegetables all mashed together. I think it's capsule. probably this, yeah, it's probably the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, yeah. They, all doctors recommend it. They're like, yeah, take one of these a day. So yeah, I take one of those a day. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep, don't need it anymore. I'm good. Yep. So there you go. I still need it. <laughs> yep. You betcha. Anywho, uh, dumb crime, stupid criminals. Uh, we call this the shitty edition. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, just kidding. No, no. Um, We're gonna get emails about our bathroom humor. Look yes, yes, we will uh, eventually. Uh, I did see on the chat room the underwater needlepoint conversation kind of blew up at us. It did. Well, there was a little <laughs> confusion. I, I believe it was Tamara who who didn't know what under needle or underwater needlepoint was. So I, yeah. we had to drag that back out and. Yeah. It was good to see. It was good to see. I was yeah. I'm glad I could answer some questions. Yeah, yeah. So we just had to explain what it was one more time. Yeah. I think she was yeah. probably listening to old uh, old episodes. Yeah. Yeah. So we had to we had to explain what the code meant. Uh, we do have an NSFW section today. Um, we'll call it the fetish edition. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> that's that's coming oh, that's up scary. <laughs> at the end of uh, that's coming up at the end of dumb crime, stupid criminals. Uh, we'll start out today with cops nabbing a woman after a CPAP battery incident. Okay, well that could that could be a problem. Oh, it was. An ex-husband was left bloody after an incident at 3:45 a.m. We go to Florida, of course, because if you're going to beat somebody with a CPAP battery, uh, it's going to happen in Florida. Oh, of course. Of yeah. course. Why no, there's not? no sleep apnea in, in Florida. No, it is God's waiting room. I, I did <laughs> I did uh, point that out to Rebecca Pittman uh, today in our interview that uh, Florida is God's waiting room. It is. It is. It is. A uh, Florida man who already has sleep challenges was battered early yesterday. This was August 2nd, so it was early a couple of days ago. 
uh, by his ex-wife who ripped a CPAP machine off his face while he was snoozing, according to cops who report that the victim was left bloody after the 3.45 a.m. incident. Investigators say 42-year-old Jennifer Calandria, who looks like she's trouble. I'll show her. I'll show you her picture in a minute here, Bruiser. Okay. She looks like trouble. And the victim lived together in a St. Petersburg home owned by the 42-year-old man. Calandria and her ex-spouse divorced in 2009, records show. There's your first problem. Yeah. <laughs> you get yeah. divorced in 2009, guess what? In 2009, you move out. Yeah. Well, you know, I know they don't pay a lot for jobs in in Florida. but True. But that's no excuse to be still living together after 14 years. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. No way. No. Uh, unless, you know, you're still, you know, doing the do, you know. Which they probably were. I bet you they were. Yeah, probably. They, they're probably still, uh, you know, exes with benefits. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But they, they, have, a, they have a third room for a spare bedroom, but yes. they don't really, they, you know, that's, they sleep together. So. That's the rally room, as they call it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Every once in a while, they need to rally together. They put the rally caps on backwards and, you know, they go to it. Uh, according, then she beats him with a CPAP machine. Yes, yes. Then when she's had enough of him, she beats him with the CPAP battery. Yep. According to the man, he was asleep in his bed early Monday, CPAP in place, when Calandria came into the room and ripped the breathing device off his face, leaving him with a bloody cut on his lower lip. Ow! Calandria yeah. then began arguing with him. With a bloody lower lip, you don't get to argue too much. Yeah, what are you arguing with at 3.45 in the morning? The man's sleeping. Oh, you know what it was? Because this has happened to me. I don't know if it's ever happened to you. I've gotten in trouble in Mrs. Bruce's dreams, and she's woken up and yelled at me for the dream version of me. Uh, yeah, once or twice. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Well, I, I have no idea. I'm sleeping. <laughs> yeah. Nothing wrong. I, I didn't do anything in the real world. It wasn't me. <laughs> Using mild air pressure, the CPAP machine keeps a user's breathing always clear while they sleep, unless you rip it off their nose. Then it exactly. does nothing. Calandria was arrested for domestic battery. <laughs> of course, it's, it's irony. A misdemeanor and booked into the county jail from which she was released on August 2nd on her own recognizance. A judge was or has ordered Calandria, rather, to have no contact with her former husband. While an arrest affidavit does not indicate why Calandria was living with her ex, the residential arrangement appears recent, it says here, although 2009 is not recent. No. Last year, the victim was arrested following a domestic confrontation with a woman whom he had been in a romantic relationship with for 12 years. So there is a bit of jealousy. So I think what it was is they were living together. Then he met this other lady. She moves in with them. So now you got a three's company situation. He's probably still getting on the side with the ex-wife. Yeah. Yeah. Come and knock on our door. Exactly. And then something we'll happened last night where on the second, she just said, hey, I'm going to rip off your CPAP and beat you with it. Yeah. Uh, that domestic battery case by the way was dropped by prosecutors probably because they couldn't think of a good reason to keep it going by the way does she spell trouble well yeah yeah 100 she just looks like she's gonna rip the cpap <laughs> off your face and beat you with it she looks like if you ordered sandra bullock and wish 
<laughs> that's a good one. Yes, she does. Sandra Bullock on Wish. That's that's exactly what she would remind you of. And everybody's got that mental image now. When, oh, I know that. Yeah, yeah. She's not the Etsy version of Sandra Bullock. No, she's the Wish version. She is. Ooh, boy. Oy vey. Mm-hmm. I don't think we reported this story at the time. Did we talk about the shocking Mother's Day gift of a Wisconsin man? No. I don't think we <laughs> what did. What would my fellow Wisconsin brethren give to his mom? <laughs> no. Not, not the gift mom asked for, I'll tell you that much. Uh, let's go back in time, shall we? Back to May, when the most shocking Mother's Day gift this year was the handiwork of a Wisconsin man. During a disturbance on Mother's Day, a 43-year-old woman was tased in the neck by her son. Oh, well, happy Mother's Day. He just wanted to add a little spark to the marriage. To the, well, it's not a marriage. <laughs> oh, relationship. Maybe in Wisconsin it is. I don't know. Maybe he's getting back at her for all the time she made him go out in the yard and get a switch. That could be. Uh, tased in the neck by her son, who was upset because he could not find his phone. <laughs> of course. Ma, where's my phone? If you can't find it for me, I'm going to tase you in the freaking neck. It's called Find My Phone, son. Yeah, the button. That's right. Investigators say that 22-year-old Andrew Peterson tased his mother in the victim's home in Lone Rock, a village about 45 miles west of Madison, I believe there is cousin spawning. I'm not sure. Uh, after the tasing, Peterson left the residence with his 20-year-old girlfriend and the couple's young child. Oh, he's setting oh, a good example. Yeah, he's like, here's child. Here's how you treat your mother. Yep. If she doesn't give you everything you want, you just tase her in the neck. Mm. Hey, and he looked at his girlfriend and said, hey, you get ready. Hey, son, you want to see grandma hit the deck? <laughs> Police subsequently located Peterson, who reportedly admitted to using an electronic weapon on his mother on Mother's Day. Oh, what of a, all days. What a blessed cherub he is. I'd hate to see what he got her for Christmas. Oh, well, let's just say it was a uh, it was a bright, twinkling, shining Garrett. <clears throat> I just think a cat or garrot. Like, he just keeps going up in electricity, trying to build a good old Sparky. Mm. Peterson's girlfriend, Colleen Parker, the most unfortunate woman walking the planet, was also arrested for allegedly punching Peterson's mother in the face during a confrontation on Thursday. That's because all, all her OnlyFans stuff is on his phone. She's got to post to her OnlyFans. That's right. Boy, are they quite the couple. Oh, yeah. Couple of That's year. a couple you want to go on a double date with. Yeah. Peterson and Parker uh, pictured. Oh, I have them pictured in mugshots. I'm going to show you. you you're going to love their them. Their child's in for a great future. You thought uh, you thought that uh, some of the royal couples are stunning? Wait till you <laughs> see these two. All right. Peterson and Parker had been living in the victim's home for the past several months. Of course they were. Well, yeah, they, they don't have jobs. They don't, they don't pay their own rent. Uh, they were booked into the Richland County Jail at this time in May. Uh, Parker was charged with battery and disorderly conduct. Peterson was charged with battery, disorderly conduct, possession of an electronic weapon, and bail jumping in connection with a separate domestic battery case pending in Iowa County. Oh, geez. Because why not spread it out betwixt the county's bruiser? <laughs> Someone needs anger management. Yeah. Peterson's rap sheet includes prior convictions 
for DUI, possession of drug paraphernalia, and trespassing. The only thing he didn't use was ground beef as a weapon. I don't know if you remember that story. Here's the lovely... possession. Here's the lovely couple right here. There you go. She looks evil. I know. And she's dating Kid from Kid and Play. I see that. That's Kid and Play from Wish. But this girl looks just evil. Doesn't she? She looks like one of the uh, girls from the new Exorcist movie. Like, he looks real sad, and she just looks evil. Like, I belong here. I think she probably forced the kid to taste his own mother. <laughs> I think so, too. I yeah. agree. Yeah. Yeah, she she wears all the pants in that family. Oh, yeah, she does. Yeah, she is one evil woman. Evil woman. We move on. Uh, if you thought they were evil for te- te- teasing, teasing and tasing their mother on Mother's Day... This guy is the guy that you absolutely want to kill for holding up your flight. Okay. I hate when people hold up my flight. Just sit down. Well, he really held up your flight. This guy is in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and said, I'm going to blow this shit up. (laughs) (laughs) Please don't say that. Oh, he more than hold up the flight. (laughs) Oh, he did. And he held up his flight. That man is accused of saying that after missing his flight in Fort Lauderdale. A man who showed up late to his American Airlines flight at the Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport on Monday afternoon expressed his displeasure by making a bomb threat. (laughs) It's not like it was before 2001 there, champ. (laughs) Like, this is now going to take your whole day up. (laughs) (laughs) And then some. Yeah, you are, you are, and not only you, but every passenger on that plane. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, authorities say 30-year-old Vincent Serino, oh, it must be nice to be young, of Cluiston, showed up to the gate, was told his flight was closed, and then enraged, said to the gate agent, I'm going to blow this shit up. I'm going to take you all out, prompting her to call 911. What else was she supposed to do? Well, yeah. And you know what? His whole theory, if I'm not going, nobody's going. Yep. And guess what? They took off. (laughs) You're still not getting on that flight there, Junior. Everyone was holding the middle finger up as they drove past the... (laughs) That's right. (laughs) See you later, buddy. (laughs) Blow this up. (laughs) Yep. Broward Sheriff's Office deputies arrested him soon after. And I bet you it wasn't a gentle arrest. Oh, no, 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 no. These are the ones that are... It's, it's nine or ten cops, and they take you down, and there, all nine or ten are laying on you. There's a lot of knees and pressure points, and you get gaffled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, it's fun. Uh, when I attempted to advise Serino his, of his Miranda rights, he refused to allow it, BSO Deputy Christopher Anderson wrote in an arrest report. They call that resisting. Exactly. Yeah. People think nowadays that if you resist long enough, like it just all goes away. No, no you no. just add more charges to it. I watch that on patrol live. Yeah. And you see people arguing with the cops all the time. It's like, why are you just, it, you're just adding more charges. Yeah. <laughs> like why, why be stupid? Exactly. That, that's my, my, my point. If, a, if an officer has you and says you're under arrest, one, you have the right to remain silent. That means shut the fuck up. Exactly. Uh, yeah, don't don't say anything and don't make it worse. Yeah, ask for a lawyer right away, even if you're innocent, and yep. just let your innocence come through with the evidence. That's right. See, Bruiser, Bruiser has given you some very good advice. 
Well, I was raised by a correctional officer, so he had it pounded in our head. You get pulled over, you do all their commands, you do, you say, yes, sir, no, sir, and that's all you say. Yep. Yes, sir, no, sir. Yes, sir, no, sir. And if they want to ask you questions, you ask for a lawyer, even if you're innocent. That's right. That's right. Uh, once again, <laughs> this idiot, Christopher, uh, I'm sorry, that, that, um, no, 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 I'm sorry, the deputy was Christopher, uh, Serena. Uh, once again became enraged and was swearing at me and raising his voice. <laughs> of course he was. Yeah, because yeah, he, he's a tough guy. He's a tough guy. Uh, Serino appeared in court Tuesday on charges of making a bomb threat and making a false report of mass destruction of pro- public property. <laughs> oh, this will be fun. That's federal offenses, too. Yeah, it is. Now, now he's talking about uh, dealing with the big boys. Yep. While the judge said he felt what Serino wasn't well, the judge said he felt what Serena wasn't facing exactly the right charges. That sentence, no makes sense, English hard. Uh, he did find probable cause and ordered Serena be given a $10,000 bond and told him he could not go on any airport property. Yep, you're that, stuck now. That's going to make it hard to fly out anywhere. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Making a no-fly list is not fun. Serena's attorney said Serena, a truck driver, so he should really know better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Was on his way to go pick up his truck from a repair shop when he missed his flight yesterday. Well, then he should. That's not the flight's fault. It could be the repair truck. Maybe they didn't, you know, he should have said, hey, I have a flight to catch. I need to get out of here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The editor's notes of the story. Serena's arrest report stated he had been scheduled to take a Delta Airlines flight, which had been reported in the original article. An FLL spokesperson later told Local 10 News that Serena had actually been scheduled to fly on American Airlines. The article has since been corrected. Oh, good. Well, we don't want to get the wrong airline in there. Well, I mean, airlines already have bad, a bad route. They've already got a bad name, but, you know, why not make it worse? Yeah. Here's a, here's a story of swift justice. Okay. You got to love it. Oh, I'm ready. Okay. A, uh, a 7-Eleven employee takes matters into his own hands and beats a would-be robber with a stick until he cries and leaves the store. Good for him. I don't recommend all cashiers do that, but go. I'm, I'm all for it. Right. Uh, the stock, we go to Stockton, California, where the suspect asked for a soda after the beating. <laughs> we, we want hey some. man, you would be good. Can I just have a soda, please? Can I, you would be so good. <laughs> can, can I have something sweet to wash down this beating with? <laughs> just to wipe the tears out of my eyes. Uh, two 7-Eleven employees found themselves part of a viral video this week after they turned the tables on a man brazenly stealing cigarettes from their California store and beat them with a st- or beat him with a stick <laughs> until he began crying for mercy. Good. I hope they got all on video him crying. Mommy, stop! I just want my mommy. I'll put the cigarettes back. Oh, it's on video. You know, and as a matter of fact, if you'd like to watch it, I think we'll post it. Yes, in the description of the show. So. Yeah, if you want to see this man get beaten, we'll we'll mercilessly put it up for you to watch. I, I have a feeling that while they were beating him, the Metallica song "Cry Like a Bitch" was playing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in the video shared by the social media user at Yo Fokers uh, with a geotag <laughs> for the city of Stockton, California. Uh, a black man with a blue T-shirt over his face can be seen throwing boxes of cigarettes into a trash can at a 7-Eleven location. That, according to Fox LA. Uh, just let him go. There ain't nothing you can do, the man filming the video can be heard saying. 
adding that the workers shouldn't intervene because insurance will pay for their losses. That's what everyone thinks. But that's but it's not still true. a loss. Yeah. Yeah, it's still a loss. Can I get a swisher? The man filming the incident asked to no avail. Now you're just rubbing it in. Yeah, he just right? wanted to get in and out. He didn't want to be a part of it. Right. At one point, the suspect threatened to shoot the people inside. Oh, no. Ooh. No, now you're challenging. I don't think he had a gun if he, if he didn't come in with a mask and he's putting a shirt over his face. Right. Yeah. You're, you're <laughs> I don't think he planned this. Right. The suspect then attempted to squeeze by one of the workers and the two locked arms and began to scuffle. Then a second employee with a stick walked up to the suspect and began beating him with it. It's like Batman and Robin. Way to go. It's a dynamic duel. That's right. After being struck several times with a stick, the suspect is escorted out of the store by the man who filmed the incident. <laughs> Come on, buddy. I'll go buy you a pack of cigarettes. Let's go. Come on. <laughs> the video has been viewed tens of millions of times on social media and was retweeted by many conservatives who said it is a sign that people across the country are fed up with rampant crime in progressive jurisdictions that have stopped prosecuting certain offenses. This is what happens when authorities won't or can't re uh, enforce the law and some citizens decide that they've had enough. That is stupid that they made it political. Yeah, I know. It's not. A it was just two people that realized they weren't in danger and took matters in their own hands. That's right. That's all it was. That's right. Anybody of any political persuasion uh, who's just taken enough crap would, would beat the crap out of anybody. doesn't matter yeah. what color they are either, for that matter. It doesn't. Yeah. It has no, no, doesn't matter at all. Yeah. They'll just uh, haul off and beat your ass with a stick if, if you don't if you're not <laughs> armed you're male, female, no. black white trans gay whatever you're stealing you're getting hit with a stick <laughs> especially if you don't have a weapon now if that if that kid would have pulled a gun it's a different story yeah and i'm sure that's yeah. probably what the stick guy was thinking like okay he might have a gun let's let him go and then as soon as he went past the one employee and didn't brandish any weapon he probably oh yep. okay yeah no we're going now <laughs> yep time to grab that stick and, and play pinata Exactly. Yeah, is exactly what he was thinking. Uh, speaking of fighting off intruders, this is a weird week for for intruders and things that happen after the intrusion. So okay. get ready for this. An 87-year-old woman, and by the way, I got to thank uh, our listeners this week for the stories because they're funny and they're odd. And <laughs> so... Uh, They're everything we hope for. That's right. So I got to thank Tom. I got to thank, uh, um, my God, I, the, the the list of names is is amazing. So, uh, and we had more than more than a few. Um, let's see here. So, and I'll try to make this quick here. Uh, Tom was uh, Tom sent in one. Uh, Brandon sent in one. Also. Uh, we got one from Mac. We got one from, uh, oh gosh, the list is, uh, Margot sent one in. Uh, I know I'm forgetting names, but thank you everybody who sent in stories this week. I just, uh, and we apologize if we forgot your name. Yes. But keep we, them coming. That's right. Please keep them coming. Keep them coming because by God, these stories are, are incredibly hilarious. So an 87 year old woman fought off an intruder, then fed him because he was hungry. <laughs> See, that shows the generations right there. That's Remember right. Remember back in the day, like I know when I first started drinking, you could get into a bar fight. 
you'd both beat each other's brains in and then just have a beer afterwards. It was all said and done. There's no cops, no lawyers. And that's what this lady's showing. (laughs) (laughs) She just beat the piss out of him and then feed him because he was hungry. An 87-year-old woman from Brunswick, Maine, is being praised for both her toughness and compassion after dealing with an intruder in her home. Marjorie Perkins awoke around 2 a.m. on July 26th to find a man standing over her bed. Scary. The man who was not wearing a shirt or pants threatened to cut her. (laughs) Cut her with what? (laughs) (laughs) That's a whole other thing. Uh, Perkins jumped out of bed and used a chair as a shield as she fought back against the teenage intruder. Okay, different scenarios running through my head right now. First of all, you're 87. You got a teenager standing over you. He's not exactly dressed, if you know what I mean. And the first thing you do is you're like, hoppa, here's a chair. I don't know why I'm going Italian on the bit. Well, she was reaching for the Vagisil, but accidentally grabbed a chair instead. <laughs> right, yeah. She <laughs> tripped over the chair and figured, well, this will work if he's got a knife. Yeah. Uh, Perkins told CNN, he kept knocking me against the wall. He put a bruise on my forehead and one on my cheek. What? Yeah. Perkins managed yeah he Perkins managed to force the intruder out of her bedroom and she followed him into the kitchen. <laughs> he stopped he stopped in the kitchen by the sink and said he was very hungry and he hadn't had anything to eat in a long time. <laughs> Who stops a fight? Okay, first of all, you threatened to knife this woman, and then you're like, yeah. oh, it's okay. Hold on a minute. I haven't had anything to eat in a very long time. I'm very hungry. That was the intermission part of the assault. Right. So yeah. the intermission song played. The dun, 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 you know, that's playing. Yeah. And he's like, oh, hey, this is where I go to the snack bar. <laughs> all of a sudden you hear, let's go out to the movies. <laughs> let's go out to the movies. Uh, Perkins then offered the teen some food and drinks to stall for time. <laughs> Hopefully she called 911 at some point in time before this. <laughs> She gave him a box of peanut butter and honey crackers, two tangerines, and two protein drinks. Oh, that would take him a lot, a lot of oh, time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, while he ate, Perkins called nine one one on a rotary phone. That's how long it took. Yeah. Well, you know what? He's a teenager, so he was confused and had no idea what that was, what that contraption she was doing. <laughs> he thought she was trying to dial up her time machine and go back in time. Are you set in the oven? Is that yeah. what you do? Yeah. It's 911 degrees. It's okay, honey. I'm making you a roast. <laughs> uh, I'm calling the chef right now to make a special meal for you. Uh, while she was speaking to the dispatcher, the teen put on his pants and left her home. Oh, so he had pants there. Okay. So wait, he took off his pants to go do what to her? I'm assuming he thought she was a young woman. Surprise. That's my thought. I think he's a terrible intruder. Didn't do his research before he broke in. Broke in, took his clothes off, and, and he was either hoping for one or two things. It'd be like this nice hot chick that when she wakes up, sees him naked and goes, oh, please take me. And she was drier than the oven. Yeah. <laughs> That's why she grabbed the chair. She couldn't grab the lubricant. Yay. Authorities did not identify the intruder, but Perkins said she knew him from the neighborhood, telling CNN... That he used to mow her lawn when he was a kid, so to speak. So maybe he was attracted to her. Maybe. 
The teen was taken into custody and is facing charges of burglary, criminal threatening assault, and consuming alcohol as a minor. Not only that, but eating all her food. (laughs) (laughs) His penalty is $60,000 and go grocery shopping for her. (laughs) (laughs) Not only that, but being smaller than the knife. (laughs) (laughs) The knife blade was five inches. Just saying. He's mad for he. he uh, he's also want or uh, was charged with not being able to turn a woman on. Oh. <laughs> All right, we move on. This is even stranger. You ready for this? Yes. All right, we go back to Florida. Oh, of course we do. We're going to Panama City Beach, where a man breaks into a Florida church, baptizes himself before stealing money. Wait, he should have baptized himself after. Does that all right. sins are forgiven, right? Always forgive your sins after, never before. <laughs> like, he's got this backwards. He's, he better start going to church again. I know. Ironically, the man's from Georgia, <laughs> which is a backward state to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. A Georgia man who broke into a Panama City Beach church had an unusual encounter in the baptismal, according to a Bay County Sheriff's deputy. Derek Porter used a cinder block to smash a window at the Emerald Beach Church of God on Alf Coleman Road and got inside Friday morning. A woman working in the church heard the sound and fled, according to deputies. While inside, Porter caused approximately $8,000 worth of damage to the church. Porter then loaded several electronics, including a television and a computer, into his truck, along with the church's money bag. Deputies and officers with the Panama City Beach Police Department descended on the church and arrested Porter. Surprise, surprise, they say they found meth and drug paraphernalia on him. (laughs) That's because God told them to go get the TV and the VHS like a movie night tonight. That's right. We're going to (laughs) watch. We're going to. We're going to watch Oh God, You Devil. (laughs) (laughs) You said it, I didn't. Good old George Byrne. That's right. Uh, wow, that's Dean. <laughs> yeah, but our younger audience is like, huh? <laughs> you, and me, you and me are the only ones who get that joke. I have an autographed George Burns 8x10 around here. I told a George Burns joke at wrestling training last week, and it was met with complete silence. <laughs> I'm not surprised. I'm like, go Wikipedia, watch his stuff. He's a funny, funny man. He is. He's very funny. Yeah, it was a cigar thing. They're like, oh, where'd you get the inspiration for the cigar? I said, George Burns. He's known for it. And no one had a clue. Seriously? Yeah, not a clue. Uh, Burns and Allen is some of the best comedy ever. Yeah. Uh, those items may or may not explain an incident that occurred while Porter was rummaging through the facility. Porter stated that he could not remember what happened during various moments inside the church. He did remember, however, baptizing himself in the church's baptistry pool. <laughs> A.K.A. he's in the men's room. Yeah, it was a urinal. <laughs> he thought it was a baptistry pool. It turns out it was a urinal. He ended up... You know, as I was taking a dip in the baptistry pool, I actually had a little bit of cake. (laughs) Hence why you smell like piss. That's right. Porter claims something was holding his head down underwater while in the pool. (laughs) 
It was no. It was the priest. <laughs> Porter wasn't the only one who used the baptistry Friday. Uh, body camera footage released by the sheriff's office shows deputies making contact with Porter and clearing the church while inside a BCSO canine decides to beat the heat and cool off in the baptismal. <laughs> hey, puppies get hot too, man. <laughs> and all dogs go to heaven. That just proves it. Oh, no. Porter, who was already out on bond for burglary in Georgia, is now charged with burglary of an occupied structure, criminal mischief, possession of meth, and possession of drug paraphernalia and pissing off God. So you may want to give up the meth. Just put that out there. Yeah, yeah, I think it's time to, yeah. God did not talk to you. Time to go straight. Just saying. Another story of a break-in. Another story of shenanigans and hijinks. Okay. This one is a little less um, violent. We'll say. Okay. Okay. Now, well, the last one wasn't that violent. I mean, he did throw himself into a baptismal pool and <laughs> held himself under. <laughs> this one is a little more friendly. Okay. Even burglars need breaks. How do you get more friendly than being baptized? Like, that's pretty friendly, man. <laughs> I'll tell you. I'll tell you. All right. In the last story. Fed. <laughs> in the, well, true. In the last story, the, 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 the burglar took a dip. Yeah. In this story, the burglar pets a dog. Oh. I know, right? A uh, burglar takes a break from robbing a home to cozy up with an overly friendly family dog and says, I love you, too. <laughs> Aww. He's an animal lover. That's good. Dog's not hurt. Yeah. Bad guard dog. <laughs> so much for man's best friend. A suspected bike thief in California was seen pausing his alleged crime to pet and cuddle with the victim's golden retriever. Surveillance footage of the home shows. Uh, in a... Rather peculiar turn of events as the suspect was about to make his escape. He paused to pet the household dog who had entered the garage. According to the San Diego police department, they posted the footage on its Facebook page. An unidentified male entered a garage at a home in San Diego's Pacific beach neighborhood at about 1040 PM on July 15th to reportedly steal a pricey 2019 black Electra three speed bicycle which has an estimated cost of $1,300, that according to police. This isn't your average bike. It's distinct featuring eight ball caps on its tire valves, an eight ball logo on the frame, and a rear wheel frame marked with a checkered black and white pattern. The police department went on to say makes it valuable. Okay, and it's custom made. Yeah, but as the suspect is about to leave with the stolen bike, the household dog appears in the garage, stopping the suspect in his tracks. <laughs> the suspect puts the bike back into the garage, engages the bike's kickstand, and then turns his attention to the friendly dog with pets and belly rubs, the video shows. Uh -huh. the, the, the suspect says to the, to the dog, <laughs> you're so cool. <laughs> Thanks for not biting me while I steal this. You're the coolest dog I've ever known. I love you, too. You're a sweetheart. <laughs> <laughs> the man then calls out 
for the dog's dad while asking, where's your dad? <laughs> and appearing to say to its owner, you should not leave your garage open. What? So he's, this is like a, a teachable moment? Is that what we're getting here? You're like, he's just trying to teach him a lesson? I guess. The suspect then carried on with stealing the bike. The suspect is described as a white male, last seen wearing a blue and white hat, gray shirt, blue shorts, and orange athletic shoes. And he's out to educate everybody. I guess you should, you should educate people about a sense of fashion. Uh, he was carrying a black and blue backpack, according to the San Diego Police Department. They did uh, interview the dog and said, you know, what, what, what do you look like? And the dog just responded with, rough. <laughs> yeah. uh, police said he, he, uh, that the suspect is still at large and is asking the public to come forward with any tips on the case, no matter how minor it might seem. They said, hey, if you want to draw him out, just bring your dog with. <laughs> The dog's the one that's going to go when they do the, the lineup at the station. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, Fluffy, which guy was it? <laughs> right over here. <laughs> that's him. That's the guy right there. <laughs> he rubbed my berry. <laughs> he rubbed my berry. <laughs> There's a picture of the burglar rubbing the dog. <laughs> <laughs> he does have horrible fashion sense. He does, doesn't he? <laughs> Yeah. It's just terrible. It's That's terrible. probably why the dog didn't attack. The dog's like, what is this? <laughs> what in the actual F is he wearing? Do I want to bite that? <laughs> if, I, if I bite that, does it rub off on me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. It's that time, folks, for our NSFW part of the program. We got three stories mm. left on Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals. That means we take the kitties, we get them out of the room, we take our earbuds, we put them in if we're at work. We don't want the boss to hear these next three stories. If you're ready, we'll go in five, four, three, two, oh, one. All right. Boobies and beer time. Boobies and beer. Boobies and beer time. Actually, this would be uh, feedy toes and, and blunts, <laughs> I think. Because <laughs> we're starting out in Lake Tahoe. I saw an armless man smoke a blunt with uh, his foot once. Did you? Yeah, he was armless, but he, he could smoke blunts with his feet. He could roll them with his feet and then smoke them with his feet. It was an amazing feat. I'm like, wow, look at that. That's talent. I mean, you could do a lot of other cool stuff, too. But at the time, that's just what interested us. <laughs> so if an armless man is smoking a blunt with his feet and gets athlete's foot, are you doing mushrooms? <laughs> Or do you get athlete's foot in the mouth? Ew. Oh. Uh, 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 uh. What's that disease? The foot, foot, hoof, and whatever that kids can get in their mouth and their throat? Is yeah. That how you get it? Hoof and mouth? That's, yeah. if, that's if you're smoking with a horse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. Let's, let's move on. A Lake, yes. a Lake Tahoe foot fondler who broke into two women's homes as they slept is in custody. <laughs> Let me ask you this, Bruiser. I don't get foot fun. I, okay. I, what? <laughs> I, I was just going to ask you that. Are, are you a fan of the feet? I, I, if Mrs. Bruiser comes home after a long day on her feet, I'll rub her feet. You know, mm. if she's sore. You know what I mean? But yeah, it's funny, though. The reason that she decided to have. So 
first time I met Mrs. Bruiser was at a bar after a show. Mm-hmm. And my buddy goes, hey, check out our tattoo. You're a comic book fan. She has a Superman tattoo. Mm-hmm. So we got to talking. Well, this other gentleman was hitting on her, too. Mm-hmm. And the way I got her away from that is she was wearing flip-flops. I said, hey, you want to get away from that guy? He's got a serious foot fetish. Oh. And so this guy was constantly commenting on her feet. <laughs> okay. And because I, you know, so right off the bat, boom, guess what? I'm a trustworthy guy. <laughs> oh, okay. Gotcha. So she right. started hanging out more and more with me. And then here we are 13 so, years later. So you pointed out that guy was a freak. And... Yeah. I so said, you're lucky you're not wearing purple nail polish. She goes, why? Well, I would send him over the edge. And then he said it to her. Really? Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Because I kept having him buy the drinks. So that way I didn't spend my money. Oh, okay. Look at you. Oh frugal and truthful yeah huh yeah Interesting. longest one night stand ever <laughs> here we are 13 years later oh <laughs> uh, so no i have i have no interest i mean yeah. doesn't cool oh, feet wow yeah feet don't do anything for me especially yeah. now that i'm a charcoal foot patient and i see a podiatrist every week you <laughs> you learn some ugly things about feet yeah, uh, Miss, uh, Mrs. Bruce's father was a you know uh, diabetic, so he had below the knee amputation and half his foot amputated. So I don't need to see. Yeah. yeah. You, you when you oh and then oh you, you want to learn you, you want to learn something really bad about feet? No, but I guess you're going to tell me anyways. <laughs> okay, so when I was in the hospital once for um, an infection. Yeah. in my foot okay and i had the head of infectious diseases come in three o'clock in the morning i've told this story before and he told me if your if your foot doesn't get better or if we don't see they they draw a line with a sharpie um as to where the infection line has has come to yeah um where that little red mark up your leg goes and he says, if it advances past this line and they draw it on your leg, if it advances past that line, we're going to take your leg in the morning. Right. Okay. Kind of a scary scenario. Oh, yeah. So you've got about three hours because they come in at about 6 a.m. So he's standing there and I don't have anybody to call at 3 a.m. You know, it's not like you're going to wake the parents up or anything like that. Right. You've only got about three hours. But he says to me, I say, oh, well, <laughs> do I get a shower in the morning? I hadn't showered in days, right? I'm yeah. just feeling grody and I'm, he goes, oh, no, 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 no shower. And I'm like, why? And he goes, do you know what happens when you shower? I go, no. He goes, first of all, you haven't, you haven't had a shower in days, right? I go, yeah. He goes, okay. As an infectious diseases guy, let me tell you what happens. I said, okay. He goes, I think I know where you're going with this. He goes, I'm going to, I'm going to just break it down for you real simple. And I'm going to, in blatant terms, I said, okay. He said, have you been to the bathroom? Like, have you had a number two? I said, yeah. And he goes, all right. When you wash, all the germs from your butt crack are going to flow down your leg and right to that infection spot he said not only that this is the part that gets me 
those germs stick to your feet even after the shower's over yeah so all of those that have that foot fetish i like to suck on toes welcome on shit welcome to shitsville I have a buddy who he won't, he has to wear aqua socks or flip flops or slides or something in the shower because somebody told him that when he was like five. So it's always stuck in his head. Yeah. So, so I always joke with him, like, well, what do I do if I shit in the shower? Do I use my hand or my foot? And he goes, you don't shit in the shower. I'm like, why not? Save water. And he just, he gets so mad. I don't shit in the shower, but I just like watching him get so angry. It doesn't matter if he wears flip flops because when he washes really? his own ass, when he washes his own ass, the stuff out of his ass crack is going down to his feet. I am now ruining his world as soon as we're done here. <laughs> do it, do it because it, it, it runs down his ass crack, down so his it's gonna leg. it's going to go in the aqua socks. It's going to go in the slide. Yes. It's going to go. If yeah. anything, the socks trap the bacteria. <laughs> so he's you are making my day right now you have no idea because i he is that's the one thing that he is like adamant about you know what i mean is is he has feet in the shower he has to take off the socks and take off the slides wash his feet and put them back in the slides in order to guarantee anything okay yep i'm gonna ruin his world when we're done here (laughs) do so do so and he has to have an anti antimicrobial mat to stand on while he does this he he has that he has that in the shower and he has one that he travels with that he puts out when he gets out of the shower like he's it's all but it's only his feet so okay but but he still he still has to wash his feet in order in order to avoid that because the the fecal matter from his ass crack he essentially he's just as the the way and i know there are people right now going why are you talking about this it's the nsfw part of the show folks essentially and and we're talking feet here so it's it's related essentially the fecal matter and the bacteria from your fecal matter still end up on your feet because people there's people like licking those and they like rubbing their face on them yep so yeah so, yeah, and this was the head of infectious diseases at the University of Minnesota that told me this. Yeah, so he kind of knows what he's talking about. Yeah, and he said, there's no way I'm going to let you, with an, an open sore and an infection, go take a shower. Yeah. He goes, not, not even with a cast cover. I'm not going to let you do it because there's a chance you could get it wet. Yeah. So I was like, shit, I really need a shower. <laughs> <laughs> but that shower after, doesn't it feel great? Oh, finally get that shower. It's the greatest thing in the world. Best shower. Yeah. I remember my shower after my hip surgery. Greatest thing in the world. That's right. That's right. So we go back to Lake Tahoe with that in mind. By the way, enjoy your shower tomorrow. (laughs) Um, And by the way, enjoy talking to your buddy tonight. Um, It's going to make the drive to to training tonight so much faster and better because (laughs) I'm so excited. Uh, a Lake Tahoe foot fondler who broke into two women's homes as they slept is in custody, according to police. 26-year-old Mark Anthony Gonzalez was arrested on burglary and battery charges after allegedly breaking into two condos last month and rubbing women's feet while they slept. 
A suspect has been arrested in the case of an intruder who broke into two women's vacation homes in Lake Tahoe, Nevada, and fondled their feet as they slept. That, according to authorities, 26-year-old Mark Anthony Gonzalez was taken into custody on Tuesday at his home in Atwater, California, a city about 31 miles southeast of Modesto, on two counts of burglary and two counts of battery. That, according to the Douglas County Sheriff's Office, in a Facebook post. Uh, Gonzalez allegedly entered two women's resort condominiums at a resort in State Line, a census-designated place about 60 miles southwest of Reno, through unlocked screen doors between July 1st and July 3rd. He allegedly rubbed the women's feet while they slept in their beds. Creepy. According to the sheriff's office, the Did women... wake up? I'd wake up. The women woke up. We're okay, getting okay, there. Okay. The women woke up in the midst of the assaults and confronted the man before he fled the scene. Why do you not get kicked in the head when this I'm going to say, that's like kicking zone. Like you're right in the zone to get kicked. Yeah, I would think he has broken his nose multiple times. Yeah, exactly. Or lost some teeth or something. Yeah. The incidents prompted the officials to urge locals to lock their doors. Forensic techniques were used to identify Gonzalez, according to the sheriff's office. He was suspected of numerous crimes in the Atwater and Merced County areas, uh, including the theft of women's shoes, trespassing, and sexual self-gratification. That's right, ladies. He didn't just go in to rub the feet. No, he used those shoes for something. Yeah, uh, during some of these incidents. Uh, investigators believe that Gonzalez's crimes were escalating in nature, according to the sheriff's office. Jail records show Gonzalez was booked into the John Latorica Correctional Facility in Merced just before 8.40 a.m. local time on Tuesday. He was booked on a fugitive warrant without bond as he awaited extradition to Nevada. Eric... Cacare or Cacanero, that's what it is, uh, community relations manager for Douglas County, said that it was not immediately clear how much prison time Gonzalez would face if convicted or if he had a lawyer who could speak on his behalf. Cacanero uh, said that as of late Wednesday morning, Gonzalez was still not in their custody in Nevada and added that the arrest affidavit can't be released until he arrives in Douglas County and is arraigned. A representative for Douglas County District Attorney's Office cannot immediately be reached by NBC News on Wednesday. Hopefully he gets used to big, burly men's hairy feet. That's right. That's all he's going to be seeing for a while. Because he's going to be rubbing and sucking on them for, a, for <laughs> quite a bit. I'll tell you that. We move on where it gets a little bit more serious than just rubbing feet. Okay. This one is a conundrum wrapped in an enigma circled within a, I don't know, postulate problem, I guess. <laughs> uh now I'm going to have somebody say my English is not correct in that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, an Arkansas cop is arrested after trying to have sex with an undercover officer posing as an underage girl. <laughs> you would think he would know better. So he was just left out of the bevel? <laughs> <laughs> I guess. An Arkansas <laughs> cop who previously boasted that he is a figure young people look to was arrested in Texas after he allegedly sought sex with an underage girl oh, who God. turned out to be an undercover officer. All right, everybody, don't tell Mike, but this is what we're doing this week. <laughs> uh, sir, he just came up on my message board. Who told him? No, no, no. 
he wants to talk to the underage girls. <laughs> oh my gosh, I gotta ask my buddy about this guy. Okay. I gotta I gotta tell you, my buddy Max, um he his 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 mom passed away. We we had mentioned this last week. Yep. He's from Texarkana. And this officer is a Texarkana, Arkansas officer. So you got inside information. Look at you. Yeah. Texarkana, Arkansas police officer, 31-year-old Telvin Wilson, was among three suspects hit with charges last week tied to a sting operation conducted by police in the twin city of Texarkana, Texas. The two cities bear the same name and are next to each other along the Arkansas-Texas border. Texas officers put a fake ad on a website known for prostitution and posed as an underage girl. Oh, jeez. When the men replied to the ad, even though the decoy uh, told each of the men she was a minor, the three alleged creeps still wanted to meet up and pay her for sex. That according to authorities. Of course, because they're perverts. When the guy showed up and knocked, they were shocked when several police officers answered the door <laughs> instead of the young girl they were expecting. You don't look like a 13-year-old girl. You look like a 45-year-old U.S. Marshal. <laughs> Why are you not a young girl? Uh, is your daughter home? <laughs> <laughs> or in this voice, hey, hey, how come you ain't 13? <laughs> or, Sarge, what you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> what you doing here, Sarge? I didn't expect you to be here. Uh, Wilson was charged with online solicitation of a minor, which is... Or, uh, sexual conduct and his bail was set at one hundred thousand dollars good let him rot yep the texarkana arkansas police department told fox news digital wilson was fired right after officials learned about the arrest wilson grew up in texarkana texas just right over the border <laughs> uh, and began his career with the arkansas department in 2016 According to a spotlight about him, posted on Facebook in February. He was spotlighted oh, in February. Oh, that's awkward. Well, he's spotlighted again, just not the same way. That's right. Good stuff in February, shitty stuff in August. <laughs> uh, he said he liked being a figure that our young people can come and talk to in the post. Yeah. I bet yeah, he yeah. does like to talk to the young people. So he's going into jail not only as a pedophile, but as a cop, too. Like, it's double whammy for him. Oh, can you imagine how much they're going to love him in jail? Oh, they're going to destroy him. He's going to go into solitary for sure. Oh, yeah. Here's a quote directly from the officer. I have always wanted to be that officer that is able to communicate with the public and be comfortable while, while doing so. I couldn't even read it with a straight face. <laughs> He's comfortable, all right. Mm. Here's another quote from Officer Wilson, or former Officer Wilson. I'm a proud father of two, how are you going to explain this to him, who I enjoy spending time with. When I am off duty, I enjoy going to the gym and working out. Oh. Creepy. You want to show the 12-year-olds this muscle? <laughs> <laughs> Bet you the right hand's stronger than the left. Oh, 100%. Yeah. The other two suspects arrested in the sting were 33-year-old Adarius Wills on charges of online solicitation of a minor and delivery of marijuana. Oh, he was bringing wheat for the underager. Yeah, he was. 
and 37-year-old James Willis, there's a difference, there's an I in the second one, on charges of online solicitation of a minor, delivery of a controlled substance, resisting arrest, evading arrest, abandoning and endangering a child with intent to return, and possession of a controlled substance. So basically, the other guys, when the cops showed up, got down, put their hands up, were arrested. This guy decided he's going to take off running. So they decided, <laughs> okay, we're going to throw extra charges on you. <laughs> <laughs> he went, you're what? Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, the sting operation happened over two days. Nice. What do you think the cop said? When, when he got arrested? When he showed up, oh, I'm just here for the sting. <laughs> I'm here to relieve somebody, not relieve myself. <laughs> that was an abbreviated. <laughs> Here's the cop, by the way. Oh, yeah, he's a piece of crap. I think he's got a swinging chance at defending himself. So this is like the Wish version, because he looks like the Wish version of the guy that owned Death Row Records. He does, doesn't he? He looks like the Wish version of Suge Knight. Yeah, yeah. he's the Wish version of Suge Knight. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he is. He kind of looks like uh, it's a it's a out there reference, but he kind of looks like um, God. He looks like one of the Vikings linemen, defensive linemen, and he's acting just like him because he uh, he failed to deliver. <laughs> he choked on the on the goal line. <laughs> he choked on something. He choked on something. Yeah. That's a big boy too. Yeah, he is. <laughs> And finally today on Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals, a, uh, you know, Bruce, I, I only pulled this story. It's not really, we got this one from Tom. Okay. This isn't really a dumb crime story, but okay. I think he pulled it because you're always talking about how meteorologists are drawing penises on their weather maps. They are. Show me one that's not. They all do it. Or weather women, weather men, weather women, weather people. Yeah. Are always drawing dicks on their weather weather maps. They sure are. So Tom pulled this one for you. All right. A frustrated Lufthansa pilot flies his plane in a 15-mile-long penis pattern <laughs> after being diverted to a different airport. <laughs> I would love to be the air traffic controller on that one. <laughs> Lufthansa, by the way, blamed wind shear for the unusual flight pattern. <laughs> see, see, the winds, the uh, winds are a little horny now. <laughs> this yeah. is the horny season for the winds. <laughs> that was not a dick pattern in the air. That the was, wind is not a dick. The wind was just very excited. <laughs> a Lufthansa pilot... Reportedly flew a plane full of passengers in a flight pattern that resembled, well, let's face it, a dick on radar. Do you think the passengers knew, like, hey, man, we've been turning a lot. If you add all the turns together, I think we're in the shape of a dick right now. <laughs> kind of feel like the balls. <laughs> uh, I hope they don't eject us anytime soon. <laughs> this plane ride has been unusually hard. Uh, it's it a soft, soft takeoff, but it's going to be a real hard landing. <laughs> Boy, this pilot's really getting the shaft, isn't he? 
So yes, a uh, plane full of passengers in a flight pattern resembled a penis on radar after being asked to divert the flight to a different airport. The pilot of the Lufthansa Flight 306, who has not been identified... Well, it's Richard. We all know that. Yes, his name was Richard. Uh, ...is believed to have gotten frustrated after his flight from Frankfurt, Germany, was not able to land at the... Is it the Fontana Rosa Airport in Cantania on the island of Sicily, according to Italian newspaper La Repubblica? What do you mean I can't land? What do you mean? <laughs> I'll show you. I will land this plane or I will draw the giant penis in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> you will look at my strudel and you will like it. <laughs> The airport had been forced to cut down on the number of flights after a terminal fire in July, and Flight 306 was told to land on the island of Malta to the south. Before doing so, the pilot the was said to... Snipped, huh? What's that? The tip got snipped, huh? <laughs> Before doing so, the pilot is said to have flown the plane in a 15-mile pattern shaped like a big old dick, <laughs> which was seen on the flight tracking website Flight Radar 24. You know, it could have been a pair of scissors. I'll show you in a second. Okay, okay. It could have been a pair of scissors. It could have been... A duck quacking. It could have been a duck with two eyes and a bill. There we go. In a statement to Fox News Digital, I know you're like, Tim, why are all your stories coming from Fox News Digital? Because they're avoiding the real news out there. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Because they like talking about dicks. Yeah, they love talking about dicks. And so do we. Uh, a spokesperson for Lufthansa blamed wind shear for the diverted flight in unusual oh, we flight. Oh, blame that now? <laughs> yes. Instead of it was, I just got out of the pool. It's now, oh, it's wind shear. It's wind shear. <laughs> it's wind shear. Uh, due to wind shear, it was not possible to proceed with the landing approach to Catania, the spokesperson said. Therefore, the captain had to fly a holding pattern. <laughs> I bet he was holding on to it and made the approach again, but without success. He then flew to Malta, refueled and approached Catania from a different direction. Hey, would you like to see it from a different direction? <laughs> I don't know why my buttons don't want to work today. If you I don't think I mean. that airport's that type of lady where she wants it from the other direction. You know. Pilots have faced discipline for similar flight incidents in recent years, including 2019, when two Navy officers in the U.S. decided to create a phallic drawing referred to as sky penis <laughs> in the clear blue skies across Washington State using the exhaust of their jet. I remember that story very well. I remember that. Yeah. I remember seeing that. I thought it was great. That's actually what made me think about the meteorologists and how many times they draw dicks. Yeah. Last year, a KC-135 Strata Tanker. I had one of those. It was one of my first guitars. Uh, belonging to the U.S. Air Force was spotted on radar taking a flight path near a Russian air base in Syria that many online said looked like male genitalia. Mm. Well, these adjustments and movements appear to create a vulgar outline. There was no intent by the pilots or the units... <laughs> 
<laughs> to do so, a U.S. military spokesperson said in a statement at the time. Bruiser, I will let you be the judge. Did the pilot... That's a penis. That's 100% a penis. I mean, it could be a bow tie or a tie also, but no, that's a penis. That's why we're the bow tie. That's, a, that's an uncircumcised penis. <laughs> so if you would have just made one jump to the left or right, it would have been circumcised? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, that's an uncircumcised penis. Okay. So... <laughs> There's no way wind pattern made that. That's not wind shear? No way. That is not wind shear. I see wind shear. That is 100% him going, how can I get back at this guy? (laughs) I will show him. I will show him my penis. Send me to Malta, will you? (laughs) You are a huge dick, therefore I will draw a huge dick. On your radar. (laughs) Suck uh. my Lufthansa! Wiener Schnitzel for all! Maybe he was just trying to draw the airplane. Look, it doesn't it look like a Lufthansa jet? <laughs> Without the wings, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe he didn't have time to make two loops. Do you think he, like, in his head while he was going, he's like, okay, uh, oh, I'll just teach him to make a dick. <laughs> Maybe planes fly in the shape of dicks. They could. They look like dicks. <laughs> I don't know. They're slim and they penetrate the air. I don't know. It, it's, it's pretty darn funny, though. A big dick, too. What's funny is, is there is no worldwide legislation for... Yeah, he can't get in trouble ...pilots for flying in dick shapes. Exactly. I, what I want to know is, isn't it easier for pilots to fly in the shape of a, of a, of a, of a vagina? <laughs> I can't even say it. Well, a vagina, you're just basically going like... Back and forth and back and forth. <laughs> ovalish. Then you got to make, you know, you got to go up around this way, and then you got to get the inside, and then you got to get the part that men never see or feel, and you got to get all that. Speak for yourself. Some of us are very <laughs> talented. <laughs> I'm just saying... <laughs> Some of us know our way around that deal. And some of us have to draw them with a plane. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. You're talking about the little man in the little man in the sky? (laughs) The little man in the sky. He draws a vagina that he's just circling around that area. (laughs) Because he can't find it, but he knows it's in that area. He just he just puts a big circle there, and you find it. A woman gets up in the cockpit. I will fly the plane. <laughs> I will draw it. <laughs> I don't even know what the thing looks like. I don't know. <laughs> you do it. One of the one of the flight attendants gets up there and goes, "Oh, come for, come for crying out loud! Let me show you how where it is." Jesus, do I have to fly the G spot too? <laughs> no, that's the other plane coming in behind them. Oh, that's right. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Anywho, that'll do it for dumb crime, stupid criminals today. Tomorrow show supernatural news on Thursday. Ooh. Mike Ricksecker is with us. He comes Hi. back on the show. We'll talk travels through time. We'll talk about 
time travel. We'll talk about Atlantis. We'll talk about Egypt. And we'll talk about aliens. Ooh, talk of the town. Yep. It's, uh, we're talking about Mike about, or talking with Mike about his brand new book. Um, Mike will be at Michigan Paracon. We'll talk about uh, all kinds of things. We'll talk about talk. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Um, and we'll talk about uh, whether you can travel back in time. Ooh, that'd be fun. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So we're talking time travel on Thursday. I'd definitely like to hear that. And Mike actually has his own time travel stories. Nice. Yeah. So we'll, we'll talk about those as well. So that, uh, that is coming up Thursday on the program. Uh, Bruiser, what you got going on? Uh, tonight and, well, every Monday and Wednesday, I'm training the youth of the world, the future of professional wrestling. Friday, I'm in Winston-Salem for Future Stars of Wrestling, um, producing that show. And then Saturday, I'm uh, going to the Andre the Giant. It's like an Andre the Giant memorial for his museum. It's on the ranch that he used to own here in North Carolina. Oh, wow. I'm doing an autograph signing there, and then I'm producing a couple matches on the show, too. So it'll be a lot of fun to watch. And then Sunday is a student showcase at the school that we put on where it's a free show, and it's just for the students that aren't quite ready to be on the big shows yet, but they're ready to see what it's like to be in front of a crowd. Putting that together. That sounds really cool. That Andre the Giant show sounds awesome. Yeah, it's it's gonna be a good time, and I I didn't I thought his ranch was in Texas. I didn't know it was in North Carolina. No, so I'm I really excited to go. His daughter will be there. I'm really excited to meet her. Yeah, a lot of legends are gonna be there, you know, for no. the, the autograph signing. But uh, I, it'll be fun to see where he because they always say in all the documentaries, the ranch, that ranch, and the ranch in France were the only places he truly was. Yep, happy, happy because yeah. he was comfortable and could be himself. I knew it was in North Carolina. I just I had no idea that his daughter it's, his daughter was even interested in doing anything like that. It's it's a museum now, and that's what this is a fundraiser for. Is is all the proceeds go to the museum to keep the museum up and active. Wow. So, yeah. That's, so when they asked me, I jumped on it because for my generation, Andre was. I mean. Oh, he's he it. Still is. He's yeah. a mess. You know, like yeah. he's it. He's he's the man. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and yeah. to see to see where he was truly happy, it'll be fun to see. And I want to see all the alterations they had to do because you know mm-hmm. he was a large man. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I well, because of time constraints, I won't get into it. We'll talk. Maybe, let's talk about it tomorrow. Let's talk Perfect. a little bit about Andre tomorrow. Yeah, all right. Uh, sounds it, good. He's uh, an amazing man. We had we had some reaction over the weekend as well. To um, we were talking a little bit about wrestling underwater needle point that we'll yep. bring that up tomorrow we'll talk about that tomorrow and about a potential paranormal wrestling show bringing up the topic maybe on a future show so we'll talk about that tomorrow as well yep they cross over they do cross over so we'll talk about that uh tomorrow um i'll be up at knsi this weekend and All the right. next weekend after that so uh so knsiradio.com Uh, from 7 to 9 a.m. on Saturday and the Saturday after. If you just want to hear me schlep weather forecasts and sports and, you know, just do this thing! Do this thing right here, brother! (laughs) That's me on Saturday. So, there you go. So, that'll do it for today. Thank you so much for tuning in for True Crime Tuesday. We appreciate it. Rebecca Pittman has been our guest today. Again, uh, pick up her books on Alex Murdaugh and on Pam Hupp. 
two great books, two stories of disturbing murderers. Uh, we've got the links in the description of this program. Pick those up today. Do that. Uh, and we will see you tomorrow for Supernatural News. For Beer City Bruiser, I'm Tim Dennis. Thank you so much for listening to the best in true crime podcasting. This has been True Crime Tuesday.